Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. Uh, happy holidays, everybody. And I hope that uh, this end of the year is treating you well and that things are going all right for you. Uh, I think if you're, you know, somebody who's watching my show, they probably are. And, uh, and I hope that uh, this new year brings incredible things to you. I really do. I really, really do. Now, that all being said, uh, we have a very interesting topic that I have not dived deep into at all in all the years I've been doing this work because I've wanted to take the time to do it right or to at least when I do dive into it, I want to come at it from a, for, with, with someone who understands more about this um, than the average Joe. I don't want to just rant and rave and I don't want to... Uh, give inaccurate facts or information. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about China. The whole country, the whole culture, this 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 part of the world that represents a, a, a vast majority of the of the population of Earth um, and represents a culture that is thousands of years old, even if the government has changed hands many, many times over those, you know, millennia. Uh, we have a people and a culture and a way of life that is uh, multivaried, multicultural, uh, multi-geographical. It's big. It's a big thing. And to try to say or come at this from the point of view of we're going to, you know, put a put a a, a, a summary here that's going to explain every single aspect of all of that would be a little bit silly. But what we are going to do is we're going to look at some some bits and pieces of this picture of China and its government and its people through the lens of coercive control and destructive cult frameworks. And I think it's possible to do that in a similar way to how I've done shows in the past about North Korea and how you have an entire country that is under a cultic high control system. Uh, and this is contrasted with Western values and Western democratic Republic values where we believe or have the idea that individuals are important, uh, individual rights are important, human rights exist and are something we should be paying attention to. These are not universal values, though. These are not things that are adopted by everybody in the world. And while there's lip service given in some places and some degree of importance placed on concepts like human rights in other places, when we see places like North Korea or China, we see a culture that doesn't value these things the same way we do. That, that I think I'm on, in, in a safe place saying that. And so what I've done here this week is I've invited John P. Capitalist, a good friend and amazing researcher, uh, to help me discuss this. And he has uh, done some deep diving and I've done a little bit of deep diving and we've got some things to talk about here in terms of China and its um, and its controlling ways, you could say. So, John, thank you very much for taking the time to do some research on this. Join me in this, and welcome to my show again. Well, Chris, it's always fun to uh, to do this, even though I'm uh, camped out here at the waterfront estate. Uh, uh, you know, as you know, when you're a capitalist, you have to have uh, certain things. You have to have a yacht, you have to have a private jet, and you have to have a waterfront estate. Now, as it turns out, this is a picture of a different waterfront estate than my own. Um, mine's a little bit more humble, but I am looking out over a lovely body of water 
uh, as uh, as we're recording this. And um, so, uh, so you know, that is uh, one of the privileges afforded by being a uh, global capitalist. Um, unfortunately, one of the uh, tribulations of being a global capitalist, uh, at least for me right now, is that I've been spending a lot of time since the Ukraine war started dealing with geopolitical stuff, um, you know, trying to predict what the fallout of this is going to be. Now, other people had been starting to work on, um, you know, other people um, out there are doing a lot of work on China, um, but, you know, for various reasons, I have now gotten drafted and thrust into the mix of trying to make sense of this and trying to figure out what does it mean for economic opportunities for the West, uh, you know, and for the companies that uh, that we care about. Um, and, and trying to figure out what are the long-term trends that are going to decide, you know, what the world looks like in the next five to 10 years. And as I've said in the previous, poly, um, previous podcast, I think we did, um, the world is going to change dramatically. The global, the, the single globalization framework that we have is breaking apart. Um, and we're going to see regional groups, uh, start to pop up. We're also going to see the impact of demographic changes as the global population uh, ages out and as populations in many countries, with the exception of a few in Africa, are going to start to decline. And that's a phenomenon unseen previously in human history and is irreversible um, because it accompanies industrialization and particularly urbanization. So um, we're really trying to figure out how to sort through an environment where I think um, you know we will see changes unlike anything we've seen in, in the last the last forty years have been very benign, really. Um, you know, I've been a very stable environment, uh, almost unique in human history, um, and that's going to um, that's going to change. I think the U.S. is going to be okay. Certainly, we will be affected, but we will be relatively better positioned to withstand what's happening than most. Europe has a reasonable chance of being okay, but they have some structural challenges that I think are greater than what the U.S. faces. And China and Russia and several other countries have profound challenges um, that will lead to a, a lot of turmoil if they don't deal with those challenges effectively. And of course, the, really the concern for this podcast is that the authoritarian nature of the political systems in both of those countries is actually going to make it very hard for them to make the decisions they need to make. Um, and so we want to talk about, you know, what the, the political structures are, particularly the increasing use of cult-like control mechanisms to keep the population vital. We want to talk about how those mechanisms will cause the, the leaders of those countries, uh, whether they are the current leaders or somebody in the future, to go off the rails. It's an inevitable consequence of those political and control systems. And then we'll look at the implications elsewhere. So we're seeing a rise in authoritarianism, not just China and Russia. And you know we are going to focus a good chunk of the time on China, but I want to provide some info, info on other countries and what's worked and hasn't worked in authoritarian governments. So you can sort of see, you know, by contrast, what China is doing that's right from their perspective of trying to you know, prolong the life of the country and uh what's wrong and and where that where that could uh, shake out okay cool and the first thing i'd like to address and this is something we talked about briefly before we got started here today is the fact that americans need to understand or people in the west need to understand 
something that is very, it seems very hard to get people to get their wits around this. And this is why I'm stressing it at the get-go. We are talking about a culture of people, a, a vast, vast number of people, almost unimaginably huge urban areas. I mean, we're talking about cities that have millions and millions of people in them, rural areas that go for miles. I mean, we're talking about farmlands. And anyway, we're just talking about a culture that is that is very different from what we see and experience and grew up in, in say, the United States. And in trying to summarize or reduce down those differences, like what's so what's so different about it, it really comes down to a cultural viewpoint about the individual's role in the society as a whole and what the society is and what it's trying to accomplish. At least that's one, one way I look at it. And I see that in places like Asia, it meaning India or China or uh, Russia even to a degree, you have a, a sort of a flipped script from what we have in you know, modern and postmodern Western nations where the individual is sort of raised on a dais or a pedestal where the individual rights and human rights and civil rights and this idea of individuality and individual expression are prized and treated as the most important thing about mm -hmm. living. And we want to reinforce those rights and, and through personal empowerment and individual responsibility and the social contract coming together, we form our societies and we form these frameworks of individual choice and voting and republics and democracies and, and things like that because we value this individuality and this independence of expression and belief. In the, in the Asian nations, it's not quite the same thing. How would you contrast these things? China has this you know, ancient civilization and going back thousands of years based on Confucian ideals. And those are still operative even with the modern, quote, communist system, you know, that the, the people at the top are knowledgeable. And, you know, China had a merit-based system to get into the upper ranks, the, the mandarins that, that ran things. Um, so it wasn't a, you know, there was an emperor, but, you know, the mandarins who did all the work of running the bureaucracy even thousands of years ago, you know, you had these entrance exams. And so there was, you know, once you had earned your way into that rank, you know, the natural order of the universe was that you were to, they were to be uh, deferred to, and their advice and wisdom was to be respected. Um, and so, you know, this translates into the modern day with the Communist Party, which is only about 5% of the population are party members. They're the ones that get to vote. They're the ones that get to decide. Um, everybody else gets to kind of go along for the ride. And the deal is that the individual, the state will serve the individual's needs as long as the individuals serve the state's needs. You right. know, whereas we have a very different view, you know, the government is here to serve and empower the people, theoretically. And, right. you know, that's... Um, you know, but but when you look at it, the government's here to build roads that we can all use to build businesses and move freight around and take vacations on and, you know, and so forth. That's right. So the but, idea here really is one of not necessarily structure, because we see similar things there as we see here, and we call them the same things. We see voting, for example. 
We see government processes. We see bureaucracies. We see roads and civic responsibilities and things like that. And it looks all very similar, but the philosophy behind it, the underlying, the roots of the systems are what I'm saying are, are quite different. And that, that leads to a different approach to what is happiness, what is a satisfactory life, what is civic responsibility. Mm-hmm. These are very, very different. And I think where I'm trying to go with this is that you have these more what we might think of as authoritarian or controlling civic frameworks where people are a cog in the wheel. They're, they're, a, they're a part of the system and they're willingly, knowingly part of that because they perceive that that's their place in society. Whereas yeah. individuals in the West are more about personal empowerment and I'm taking charge and I'm leading and I'm causing my own destiny. Yeah. And I think, you know, you had a period where the, this Chinese system that we're talking about um, has been a fairly benign situation, but with uh, what's happened in the last 10 or 12 years and with the advent of social media, mobile apps and internet and other forms of technology, you have uh, an increased need for, or per, you know, the government in China perceives it as a, an ever greater need to control the aspects of the daily lives of its citizens in order to keep the economic growth going, right? The, the deal in China is you let us take away a certain amount of freedom and we will drive economic growth. But right now, the economic growth isn't happening for a whole bunch of reasons and not just COVID, but a whole ton of reasons. And so the bargain is becoming a little bit more fragile. And we're seeing some evidence of some fraying there with massive demonstrations in the cities uh, where we haven't seen this since Tiananmen Square 35 years ago. Um, and so the government is, you know, tilting towards a much more aggressive authoritarian micromanagement of people's lives than it has in the past. Right. And look at, you know, how they're using coercive control and cult-like techniques to get there. Exactly. And, and, and we made the point earlier when we were to, when we were talking about this show about how protests in China are nothing new, but when it cuts to the point where we're seeing it on TV and, and, and media and stuff, you know, it's pretty bad because they have a force of a few thousand people or something that, that are, whose sole job is to put down riots. It's, it's actually, yeah, that's called the people's armed police. It's actually something like 800,000 to a million armed officers and their only job they don't give out traffic tickets they don't investigate burglaries um they don't um you know solve murders they only put down it's the riot squad it's a full-time riot squad and you know they've had a lot of small-scale demonstrations in china and in fact the last year that they reported statistics for about 10 years ago when they finally got so big that they stopped they were having two hundred thousand riots a year um, or, you know, mass demonstrations uh, that the riot police got called out for. Uh, and then they I mean, they solved that problem by just not publishing statistics. So there's always a bunch of low-level dissent. Um, but, you know, we had this outbreak after COVID and a couple of other things. Um, you know, we've had this outbreak of, you know, major demonstrations in, you know, close to home, not just in Hong Kong. Interesting. So that speaks to the fact that the fact that that exists, this, this, this riot squad exists, is one of those kind of fundamental but invisible differences between, you know, at the East and the West. 
where you don't see it, you don't think about it, you don't hear about it. So it's kind of out of sight, out of mind for people in the West. It's like, wait a minute, there's a million dudes whose sole job is to put down civil protests? What? Like that yeah. doesn't exist over here that same way, you know? And yeah. so it tends to be one of these invisible differences where once you find out about it, you realize, well, if that exists, then that must mean da 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 Whoa, hang on. And you start seeing these vast differences between the structures of the East and the West. It's not all same, same, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, you know, very much the hallmark of an authoritarian state is to have, you know, the internal, you know, um, squash dissent police. And I'm sure that there are all sorts of domestic intelligence agencies and, you know, spy, you know, sort of domestic, you know, spy service, you know, secret police that are, looking for, you know, organized dissent, not just spontaneous protests. But there's a there's a lot going on to the surface that, you know, you don't see out in the West. And that's something that I've learned very quickly in starting to dig into all the geopolitical stuff I do at work. Right. Um, is that, you know, we don't really, you know, we get this idealized picture that makes it look like the Chinese system is working. And it's from their perspective, from particularly from this perspective of leadership, it's not. Exactly. Well, let's go ahead and get into that then. So what in what ways do you see that they are having issues and troubles right now? And how does that point up these weaknesses in the system? Like, for example, we see the protests. We see right now massive uh, layoffs in the tech sector in China, mm-hmm. like hundreds of thousands of people being laid off of their jobs. We see uh, this globalization framework around the world breaking down where China, because of COVID and various logistics and distribution problems and even production problems, they're not producing the way they were. And therefore, companies and corporations are having to source other countries, other places. And this is causing uh, economic and, and GDP issues in China. What, I, you know, can you speak to, to these things? Okay. So let's, let's, let me think, um, let me suggest maybe a, a, a different approach. Sure, absolutely. So let's back, let's back into all of that because that's, that's really, you know, the, the economic circumstances, which are, you know, remarkably, um, uh, you know, powerful, you know, uh, trends that are really starting to culminate here, uh, are, worth noting and but but in order to get a sense of how the government's going to respond and whether that's a good idea and and to get a sense of you know what should we as citizens of the west do about this or think about this let's look at just uh, sort of the general idea of authoritarianism and and how that morphs into cult countries in general and and we can kind of look at a continuum of some examples of cult countries and that all kind of build up to China, which is really unique among authoritarian and cult countries, not just because of the scale, but because of, you know, um, all sorts of other factors that I think are, are fascinating. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Okay. Let's bring this down a few levels first. And and so, you know, I think if we sort of start to look at, um, you know, the, the ancient history about rulers, right, we have the fundamental concept of the divine right of kings. And, and, and you think about, 
you know, it's always very convenient when a king can do whatever he wants because the population believes that he's appointed by God. Now, that's very helpful when you have a hereditary monarchy and the king that you just got that just came in turns out to be a turd of a human being. He turns, you know, with all the intermarriages among the houses of Europe, sometimes you got some guys that were not quite bright sitting in the big chair. Yeah. And, uh, and you had to just hope that they caught, you know, typhoid or something and that they were disposed of quickly. Um, or that they had a little hunting accident or who knows what. Um, and because you couldn't really get rid of them, you know, but you had this very entrenched power structure and you didn't have any essentially way to remove a bad king from office. Right. And so, you know, their legitimacy to keep people from revolting is God is on my side. When and the church would often act as a willing ally in this because they were, it was a marriage of church and state in many, yep. many cases all throughout Europe. Yeah, and sometimes the church actually exercised veto power over various leaders, um, and uh, you know, in order to maintain its own control and and so forth. But but I think the the um, the fact is that you also use the divine right so that people had some comfort if you had a loser in the big chair. Uh, that God, I hope God is on our side because you know we're going to lose wars because of this moron. And I hope that there's a divine plan that we'll somehow be able to snap back. Right. And of course that didn't always happen. Right. So, so it's very, um, you know, that, that structure when power is earned by some externality and not by, you know, merit leads to all sorts of problems. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, the, the way of choosing Kings, even in, you know, like Roman politics or, you know, certain places where hereditary monarch isn't, uh, isn't always done, um, can be pretty absurd. Right. And I think if we want real absurdity, um, let's, let's dig back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes. <laughs> you don't vote for kings? Well, how do you become king then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. So you get a sense of the silliness of a uh, mechanism for choosing a leader that isn't based on uh, accountability for results. But, and yet it still happens for much of human history. The idea that an or, you know, that a government uh, essentially has diffuse authority, you know, that individuals have pieces of the puzzle and that you set up an organiza organizations so that there are competing interests and mechanisms for addressing those. So you have a department of energy whose job is to get oil out of the ground and you have a department of the interior in the U.S., that's what those are called, whose job is to protect the environment. Those are competing interests, and those are deliberately set up to be at loggerheads so that there's a debate about the right amount of priority for oil. Now, don't drill in Alaska. Not that economical at this point to do more of that anyway. But, you know, when it was economical, you know, do we want to protect the, the wildlife and the natural beauty, or do we need more oil? That's and those competing interests often end up with 
another solution, which is let's do fracking in Oklahoma, which gets us more oil cheaply, and we don't have to worry about that. And so a better solution, or never mind the earthquakes in Oklahoma do the fracking, but um, better solution than going and drilling in Alaska, which really isn't that great of a, you know, practical anyway. So, so basically, um, you know, you have this idea, by the way, my favorite example of a monarchy, you know, really buying off the, the clergy is Saudi Arabia. 250 years ago, um, they hooked up with a, you know, the House of Saud, the founder, hooked up with a kind of a heretical um, theologian, uh, al-Wahhab, um, and he had a puritanical notion of Islam. And so, you know, the church, the, you know, the Islamic religion, in, as practiced in Saudi, is the thing that keeps the population in line. And so the agreement is the Saudis are going to spread that religion and evangelize it. They'll do the dirty work to advance the religion if the religion confers legitimacy on the House of Saud. And that's worked for 250 years. May not continue to work, but it has been a very effective uh, bargain, very explicitly made to protect the, uh, um, you know, to protect that institution. And, you know, in Europe, Catholic Church had been in place since Roman times. So it was kind of a natural part of the power structure before any of the monarchies evolved. But, you know, people were cutting deals with the church. And you certainly see that in Russia now with Putin uh, cutting deals with the head of the, the patriarch of the uh, Russian church, who's a real uh, kleptocrat, just like the rest of them. Um, and now he's suddenly saying that this, he has now suddenly revealed that the Ukrainian war is divinely inspired. <laughs> so, wow. So you have, you know, so you have the seeds of, you know, leaders as essentially semi-divine or mythic figures going back to the dawn of history, you know, with the, the divine right of kings. Then you have media. I'm sorry. Often perceived in a pre-technological world as completely normal, completely rational, and obviously the best choice, because who else would you want leading you except the guy who's really in charge of everything, blessing the family or the family line of people who are now ruling us, I mean, it makes perfect sense to, you know, that medieval sort of mind. Yeah, but but I think you know, if you can manipulate modern media, you can certainly elicit medieval thinking in in people in populations today. And right. so, you know, we see that medieval thinking in Scientology. By the way, um, the one of the key pieces of medieval thinking is the tend, and and this is really the root of authoritarian political systems is in medieval thinking, authority matters. So the Bible is the ultimate authority. So everything in the Bible is presumed to be true because it's the Bible. Just below that are the ancient Greeks, Aristotle at the head of the pack there. And there was a whole lot of work that went on in medieval times of sorting out the hierarchy of who was the dependable source. So you went to the Bible. If the Bible didn't say anything about it, you went to the ancient Greeks and then blah, 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 down the line. And then that's how you got your answer. Now, if you actually read some of Aristotle's stuff, and I don't remember all the details, but I sort of perused this idly at one point, Aristotle had some great truths that he discovered. He also had some just ludicrous ideas about other things. But because he was the authority, you believed what he said, no matter what it was. You didn't independently think about whether it was a good idea or not. 
That's the antithesis of science. And it's really quite interesting because people look at it through through a modern lens and um, not understanding the historical context or the larger picture. And they're always asking themselves, you know, how could people believe this stuff? How could people fall for this stuff? And you really got to get over that. You know, I really wish people would get over themselves on that because it's like the fact of the matter is people can believe anything if you give them a good enough reason to. And people have a lot of good reasons to believe in this stuff. They were not just a bunch of idiots. I mean, they thought this was, and this is a very important phrase in this podcast as a whole, is they thought these things were the natural order of things. Yeah, and and they believed that certain people were authorities. And if the authority was right enough about some stuff, you would tend to follow them because you didn't have this idea of science which says, well, Aristotle says whatever random thing about the world, let's test that out. Right. <laughs> That's right. The truth should be the truth, you know, that the truth should work the same for everybody. That there is an external verifiable truth. And so, you know, that that authority, you know, L. Ron Hubbard, everything L. Ron Hubbard wrote is true and is the wisest and smartest stuff that's ever been captured on paper. And that's why we put it on titanium plates in special caves so that people in the future will be able to discover the genius of L. Ron Hubbard. Exactly. And so that's the ultimate medieval thinking in a cult that claims to be about space aliens in the future, which is sort of an amusing contradiction. But, but you know, funny, funny, funny when we say it this way, but when we think about, you know, political systems, there's still that thing, right? That the king is the king of everything. He's not just the king of war. You know, he's going to be the king that runs the economy and he's going to be the king that sets the social trends and decides which roads get paved and everything else. That's right. And I can't help but bring up a Western example of this that I think a lot of people, I know this always pisses off a certain number of people in my audience. And frankly, I just don't care because I have to speak the truth as I see it. And the truth is that we see things like what we're talking about here in cults of personality around, say, a Donald Trump, where we want the the thing you can say, I feel on very certain ground about when it comes to something like that, that cult of personality that built up around him, is we have a bunch of people who want him to be a king. They want him to be the guy making all the decisions and ruling all the land and his way is, it's his way or the highway. That's what they want. They literally tell you that in yes. so many words. And that's what we find so disturbing about is it's not his policies or his ideas. It's the fact that you want to give this guy, I wouldn't do that with anybody on the left or the right is let's give them all the power. That's crazy in a Western system, but that's what we see. And that's one of the things we find so alarming well, about those cults of personality. Yeah, and, and so think about well, why is this happening? And there's plenty of reading that, that you know people can do to to try and understand this. But fundamentally, um, and this is a problem that's not just happening with Trump and some segment of the U.S. population, but it's happening globally. Um, about uh, slightly more than half of the world's population today lives in an authoritarian, highly restrictive system, and that number has increased over the last twenty years. And so, you know, there's a lot being written, a lot of hand-wringing about, well, democracy doesn't work anymore. And and I think democracy still works, but the expectation of people has changed. 
you know, and in the U.S., I think what's fueling the rise of the people who don't want, you know, who, who want to short, you know, sort of take shortcuts past democracy, which takes a long time to work certain things out, are the people who think that their way of life is the only possible way and that it's threatened. And so in particular, people who think this way are often evangelicals, right? That, you know, on the one hand, they believe that the doctrine in the Bible is literally and exactly true. And that if anything, and that they they see these one verse, what's called proof texted, you know, pulled out of context and, you know, about um, masturbation, say. And they build an enormous theology around, you know, that that's evil. And I think uh, I read somewhere that uh, I think it's in Florida, they're now teaching uh, evils of masturbation in the public schools, or they're now preparing to start teaching that. And so um, the, the faith is very, that kind of faith, when you have a literalist interpretation of your holy book, whatever it is, uh, that kind of faith is very brittle. And when the world evolves and it's, you know, it's no longer the case to say the storm was caused by God. No, a storm was caused by global warming and a, you know, storm that started off of Africa and moved on a predictable track across the Caribbean and slammed into Florida. And we understand that mechanism. It's like, well, you know, essentially when there's a better alternative explanation, your, your religious beliefs are under threat. And if you're hanging on to those things for all you got, and all those evil liberals who laugh at you, and all of those kids that you have that leave the faith, by the way, about half of evangelical kids leave the faith when they grow up. Yep. Um, and the fact that the U.S. is no longer going to be a Christian-majority country in about 20 years from now, you see that the central thing of your life is under threat. That's right. Under and it's a war. They have to arm themselves and fight. I mean, these are the, this is the language they're using now. Yeah, well, it's very much... Are so you know, much against the wall. And these are all, you know, this is, you know, that, that typical theology tends to be very apocalyptic and monarian. Yep. And, and so they, they tend to gravitate to that. And, you know, you also have economic sort of long-term economic issues, right? That the, um, a lot of the evangelicals are centered in... Uh, you know, rural areas, and a lot of uh, Trump supporters are in are in rural areas, and rural, you know, the rural America and much of the world in general is dying, and it is not going to be salvageable. Automation has and will continue to reduce the amount of um, uh, jobs in farming, yep. and it will reduce the profits for those who remain. So farms are going to continue to get gobbled up. Uh, as we have, you know, higher degrees of automation, uh, farms will continue to get gobbled up by larger interests, uh, which will continue to do, drive more prices for food for consumers, but will continue to hollow out the, the rural economy. And then you also have sort of what I would call marginal white collar jobs. And these are people who are like supervisors in call centers or people who have gotten a step on the white collar ladder. And a lot of those jobs have gone away in the 2008 recession. Mm. You know, unemployment among 50 year old men was among 50 year old white collar workers was a record. Mm. And, and so you have a lot of economic insecurity among, you know, suburban middle classes in certain urban areas. And those are also very solid 
you know, I think if you look at the, you know, the people that swarmed the Capitol on January 6th, a lot of those are suburban, you know, they're not people from the back of beyond in Alabama. They're, they're oh, relatively organized. Hillbillies. This was Ashley Babbitt. This was a, a, a soccer mom from San Diego, ex-US yeah. Force. This is this is accountants. This is uh, middle management. This is we see the people who were arrested, police yeah. officers. I mean, we we're seeing a cross section of middle yeah. America, you know. Yeah, and it's and so it's either and so the authoritarian push is exactly what Trump harnessed very well, which is Make America great again. We have fallen from where we should be because of those people who aren't real Americans or who are from another country. And they are taking our country away from us. And so if, you know, the the populist and authoritarian comes along and promises a return to, you know, a past that really pretty much never existed, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, make America uh, leave it to Beaver rerun again. That didn't exist. It was a fantasy. Right. And so make America a Christian country again. Well, it never really was. Yes, Christians were a greater percentage of the population, but it was never explicitly a Christian country. That's the truth of it. That's right. So, so it's taking you back to imaginary past or it's reclaiming what is rightfully ours. And so Russia is talking about you know, they're playing the same game. Putin is playing the same game and saying, we're reclaiming the land that was ours. And he's actually talked about, you know, not only taking back the old Soviet Union countries, but he wants to take over Sweden because 300 years ago, Sweden and Finland were Russian satellite co- uh, colonies. Right. Um, you know, and it's, so it's really uh, take back what's ours. And that leads to kind of the, you know, authoritarian movement that as the economy is, it gets harder and harder, you know, there are no easy jobs anymore. As it gets harder and harder to make a living, you have to be more and more skilled. You can't just show up and do what you did yesterday. You got to evolve. And a lot of people really don't have the confidence. They have a fear of the of the future. Yeah. And authoritarians are tapping into that. They're tapping into the fact that, you know, the pie may be somewhat shrinking. And it's it's always easier psychologically to fall back to the past. Our memories are scrambled. Our ideas are weird. Our emotional needs are all over the place. So it's easier to create that fantasy than it is to do the hard work of creating a positive future and invest in what it takes to make that happen. Yeah. And so, you know, we have this political polarization and people are now, you know, willing to say, you know, we're not getting anywhere on making the U.S. a Christian country again. You know, we need prayer in the schools. That will fix all our problems. We're not getting anywhere. So Trump comes along and says, I'll make people say Merry Christmas. He comes along and says, I'll put all the coal miners back to work. He comes along and says, I can win a trade war with China. Trade wars are easy, direct quote, by the way. Yep. Um, he makes promises that we can get this all fixed and we can do it tomorrow. And from what we know about authoritarian powers, that kind of might possibly be true. You know, so for example, you know, Russia, well, you know, everybody looks to China as saying, well, you know, this stuff might work. Or another country where there is an authoritarian government 
But the economy works and people seem to be pretty happy in general, as long as you don't spit gum on the sidewalk and spend a year in prison for it, is Singapore. Exactly. Right? So the economy seems to be working. They're actually picking up a lot of business from people afraid of the future in China. But, you know, Singapore has done a phenomenal job, you know, becoming this massive economic power disproportionate to its tiny size. And it is a fairly authoritarian regime. And that's exactly how I've seen and read recently how China is sometimes considered, right? They look at the system and they look at the efficiency and they look at the work and the GDP and all that. And they go, well, they look happy. They seem happy. Everything seems to be running. The trains are running on time. What's the problem? And then you reveal hidden gems like, well, yeah, but there's a million riot police on for the 200,000 riots we're having every year. And you go, hang on, (laughs) maybe this picture isn't quite as rosy as it's being presented, you know? Well, you know, so, so essentially, you know, what you get is this, this fantasy, but you know, when, when an authoritarian government comes in, things do work better, but for a very short period of time. And then they work worse for a very long period of time. Okay, and so we'll, we'll get, we've got I've got some examples sort of saved up throughout you know the things I want to talk about here, um, and so you know you make a like a, here's a good decision in the I think in the 40s or the 50s um, there's a place in uh, Europe in Central Europe called the Aral Sea, uh, it's east of the Caspian Sea, and it used to be the world's fourth biggest lake. So they decided it's kind of a desert area, and they decided they wanted to put in cotton because that was a high value crop, and um, they could maybe export it, but they needed cotton and they couldn't afford to bring it in from India or the U.S. or the other good cotton-growing countries. So so they started pumping water out of the LLC um, to plant cotton. And they started putting pesticides on, which was new to them. And so the cotton yields just went bonkers. Good stuff. So they did more of it. And in 40 years, they drained the LLC and there's so much pesticide residue from overuse of pesticides in that area that they've basically taken an area bigger than Arizona and turned it into a, an almost radioactive desert that's almost uninhabitable. You know, there's very little water left. The you know, the, it's a it's a massive economic catastrophe because the authoritarian system wouldn't undo a bad decision. They wanted to keep the positive face. And they kept doing what worked before because they can't adapt. They don't have this diffusion of authority to work out the consequences uh, and and look at, you know, trying to balance economic uh, growth versus ecological disaster. So that's a that's a failure of authoritarianism. And, and that's where I I have to take a moment to highlight what you said earlier that that diffusive system that EPA versus uh, the the energy the Department of Energy versus Department of Interior conflict that you build into the system that prevents that exact outcome from happening yep. allows some production but it doesn't allow unhindered volatile levels of production that are going to destroy things and this is the short-sighted nonsense that I've seen even my viewers get involved in where it's like, well, down with the EPA, down with these regulations, down with all this stuff. You you have no idea how short-sighted you're being 
as a consumer when you're saying stuff like that, lacking mm-hmm. the bigger picture that we're talking about, where in 40 years, you know, you think this is a prosperous, you know, move, but 40 years from now, your kids are going to hate you for doing this, you know, and they yeah. don't think about that because it's out of sight, out of mind, short-term thinking. Yeah. Had to make so, yeah. And so I think, you know, regulation, for example, Trump scrapped the uh, minimum fuel requirements for automakers. Well, what that was, was a nice thing. It was a great level playing field to get all the automakers to invest the appropriate amount of money into increasing gas mileage, whether it be by hybrid cars, electric cars, or whatever. And everybody benefits from that because you're spending less money at the pump. And you're also, the country benefits by reducing dependence on oil being bought from people we don't like, like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and you know, and so forth. And so if we get a chance to put the Arabs out of business, you know, all these, you know, nasty, corrupt countries out of business or re- reduce the amount of money that they get and save consumers money, that's a good thing. And yet this religious mantra of deregulation, people are in favor of deregulation without knowing how much it's going to cost them directly. But all right, let's, let's jump over, let's jump over the Chinese example of, um, things looking like they're going great in early days of an authoritarian regime. And let's look at the Chinese high-speed rail network. So China has, by far, the largest high-speed rail network in the world. And it's all been built in like 20 years. I forget the exact amount, but it's like 8,000 miles or 11,000 miles or some ridiculous thing. Wow. Now, compare this to the U.S. The U.S. has been, California has been trying to build high-speed rail to connect San Diego LA, San Francisco, Sacramento, um, Fresno, a couple of, you know, like the, the five or six major population centers. They've been farting around about this for generations. Yes. Since I since I grew up in California as a kid, that's been the, you know. Now, it's a pipe dream, really, because the geography in California is really not conducive to doing this. There are some big mountains you've got to deal with to get from LA to San Francisco by rail. Um if you do it now on Amtrak, it takes 12 hours, but it's an absolutely lovely journey through some wonderful countryside. But the idea of having these 200-mile-an-hour trains, it's really not going to happen. And really, the market is not likely to be there. So there's always, you know, and so we look like, you know, and the Chinese, of course, are propagandizing this. We look like fools because we've been farting around for 30 years to get 1,000 miles of high-speed rail in the U.S., and China has built 11,000 miles in the last 20 years. And, and so you think, okay, but what's happening? Well, they are now getting bit by the law of diminishing returns. So the first rail link was like Beijing to Shanghai, the obvious one. It's like New York to Washington in the U.S. You know, the, it's the obvious one. And they made scads of money doing it. And it was a good thing because it saved a lot of time over the then current train system. So then they built another one. And they built another one. But if you look at the marginal constructions, most recently done ones, are the cities that you've never heard of. And there are so few passengers on those routes. They're not just failing to cover the cost of the bonds and and repay the construction costs. They're not only failing to recover just the operating costs of paying the people to run the trains and maintain the tracks, they're not even able to pay the electricity costs to run the trains off of what they're getting on some of these marginal routes. 
So the end result is it looks really good on the way up, but then the reality sets in and they are losing money. Why? Because the, the decision was to look good, drive economic growth, no matter what the downstream cost was, and keep building more high-speed rail to put people to work today and to look good and make the leadership look good on the world stage, show the superiority of the Chinese system. But they keep building high-speed rail to places that don't need it and where it's only marginally faster than the regular train that's been there for 100 years. I, I can't help but immediately analogize this to something I think everybody in my audience will immediately understand, which is ideal orgs in Scientology. Millions and millions of dollars in the last 25 years of Scientology's entire effort has been to buy buildings at great expense that solve a problem that never existed in the first place. Mm -hmm. We're going to buy all these buildings to present Scientology to the world because the problem is that our presentation isn't mm -hmm. as good as our technology, Miscavige says. And therefore, we're going to change all that and we're going to do it forcefully and we're going to do it at once. And they provided three immediate models in South Africa, San Francisco, and in Buffalo. Buffalo, it was, yeah. And here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it's going to do. And they sold everybody on this bill of goods that was total bunk from the very beginning. I have personal knowledge of San Francisco before, during, and after, as well as Buffalo and these other places, and every one they've built since. And every one of them has been as uh, just a, a mound, just a hill of lies and nonsense, right? No good came of this. None of the orgs are booming. None of the orgs are expanding. It's the exact opposite effect, in fact. But they still sell this to this day. After 20 years of this, they're still selling it as the ideal solution to the ideal organizations, to the ideal Scientology, and it's, I'm telling you, this is, this is practically a mirror image of what you were just talking about with the... Yeah, if you build it, they will come. Yes, that's right. Right, and it's kind of like, you know, we have this, uh, although there are certainly problems from the deregulation of the airline industry, um, there are also some advantages. So, for example, consider if an authoritarian government in the U.S. decreed that, for whatever reason, we are going to have daily nonstop flights between Bismarck, North Dakota, and El Paso, Texas. Right, right. How many people in a year go from Bismarck, North Dakota, to El Paso, Texas? Right. You're going to have a lot. Of, you're you're going to be in a quickly in a situation when it's decreed because we want to do some nebulous, intangible goal. It's decreed that you're going to fly this route. You're not even going to make back your jet fuel costs, much less your maintenance costs, much less the loans on the airplanes. That's right. And, you know, that's the situation that you get into when up front, when this is announced, you say, look, this is another example of the superiority of the American air transport system is that we can link, you know, agricultural capitals of the U.S. or whatever the hell argument you were, you know, to, to show how wonderful you're doing. And then the reality, once the, the press announcement is over, the reality is uh, a little bit different. Exactly. So, and we so, probably see thousands of examples of this kind of PR imagery hiding gross inefficiencies and actual loss all over China. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, we can we could literally talk for days on on this. And the real estate bubble is another, you know, in terms of the dollars involved, dwarfs the rail system. Uh, the rail system is a couple hundred billion dollars that have been wasted. Um, the the real estate bubble is several trillion dollars that have been wasted. So here's the problem you have: um, the Chinese stock market is bullshit. To use a technical term that we global capitalists frequently use to describe market structure and operations. Um, you, you know, it's rigged. There aren't that many stocks. They're all stodgy state-owned enterprises. And nobody really invests money in the stock market. That's why so many Chinese companies have listed in the U.S. to get partly get money from the U.S. and partly because it gives them a chance to actually have, you know, investment. So what people have invested, China's still very much a cash mentality economy. And so what people have done now is started to invest in the last 20, 30 years in residential real estate, in other words, in apartments. And so the government has encouraged this. So what it looks like at first blush is they don't have these stupid environmental regulations. They don't have zoning. They don't have any of those kinds of problems. They want to do an apartment building here. The government moves the people out. They go somewhere else and they build an apartment building and everybody gets jobs and people get shiny new places to live. And it's all wonderful. The problem is that now almost a third of the GDP of the Chinese economy is going to building apartment blocks. And a third of their GDP? And it is the principal vehicle for wealth uh, storage and, uh, and accumulation. So instead of having 401ks, instead of having a stock portfolio, families are out buying real estate. And there's a huge social status attracted to this. You know, that if you're a, a guy and you want to attract a woman, Hard to do, by the way, given the disparity in male versus female birth rates from the one-child policy, by the way. Yep. Biggest imbalance in the world. I think it's 1.2 boys for every girl these days. Um, you want to attract a mate, uh, you've got to have an apartment. And if you somehow manage to get one apartment, you better be saving for your next one, too. So you have essentially enough empty apartments that have been completed to house the population of France, I think I read one time. And you have many, many more that aren't completed. And what was happening in the rush to, so the government gives you money if you promise jobs. That's the criterion for getting a loan. Not for paying it back, but if you create a certain number of construction jobs, you get money. And so these developers in the rush to get as much money as they can have been taking deposits, starting construction, and there are staggering numbers of unbuilt apartments. They've been taking the purchase price up front to, you know, in other words, to get an apartment that hasn't even been started, you have to buy the whole, you, you have to get the loan and pay the whole, pay the whole amount of money. So a lot of these developers are now going broke. They can't make, can't make expenses. These developers are going broke. The population is losing their savings. And it's all because the government is trying to show off its ability to provide for its citizens, right? That's the bargain. We take away a bunch of your freedoms so that you don't overthrow us in return for us delivering economic growth. And so they've been making unsound business decisions in order to get that sheen of, look how wonderful we are. And so, and so. This is not a mechanism that's self-correcting. No. This just gets worse and worse as time goes on because there's no means for these people to have justice or recourse or change this system 
They're stuck in it. And the philosophy is, well, the guy in charge is the guy in charge. So we got to follow what he says. It's not the same as what you would see over here. To to date, it hasn't been, quote, the guy in charge. It's been the party. It's been, this is the... There we go. Okay. So now this is starting to change. And that's really where I wanted to start, you know, a little bit, a little bit, you know, further down the list here, um, you know, we'll, we'll start talking about the change from authoritarianism to a cult of personality. And so, and so you've got, but you've got these, you've got the entire country, you know, scared to death with this property, property bubble is going to implode, which it will. The longer you keep it going, when you don't have the demand, the worse it's going to get. And oh, by the way, as we said in the last one of these, uh, the last one or two of these podcasts we've done, the Chinese population is likely to drop by around half in the next 20 to 30 years. The oldsters are aging out. Right. And the birth rate is ludicrously far below replacement. And it's going to be a staggering percentage drop on a staggering scale. And there's nothing they can do about it. Because you need 20-year-olds, and the time to have planted them was 20 years ago. Yeah, if you pull this up on a graph, you're going to see, uh, you know, it's crap. And and by the way, you know, if you're looking at the 2020 census data, it's bad. If you look at some of the stuff that came out earlier this year, it's a lot worse. And wow. that, so the UN is way overestimating this for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think nobody nobody thinks that, you know, it's anyway. So so the so the thing is that that's a staggering problem. And it can't be resolved by throwing more money at it. Um, and so you have to resort to the cult of personality. And so, so I think, you know, this cult of personality is sort of a, an integral part of an authoritarian system. Yes. Um, you know, and, and it happens to greater or lesser degree. Um, you know, in Russia, it happened around Stalin. It didn't happen around Brezhnev or uh, Khrushchev or any of these other guys, they were relatively faceless and, you know, their, their private lives were, you know, I mean, and they, and they weren't running like a big farm and, you know, it was about power. It was not about cult of personality, but that's coming back under Putin. Um, but I think that the, um, you know, the general thing about cults of personality is that they're not these days aligned with religion. So there is, there's, yeah, and there's there there is some supernatural um, mythology that arises around the leader, but it is not tied to either a religion or the state religion. Um, the the cults of personality tend to be around males. Um, I don't think we saw a cult of personality around Queen Elizabeth. Everybody was fond of her, but she was certainly not a, a, a cult leader. Um, no, you don't see that. You also don't see that in New Zealand. They have a female prime minister. Yeah, Jacinda Ardern or, or uh, Santa Marin in, uh, in Finland. Yeah, very popular people, but not, there's not people following them, you know, following their every word and, and idealizing them as, as the next coming of Jesus and that kind yeah. of thing. And, and unfortunately, we see that kind of extremism even here. Yeah, and, and so I think the, the thing that, also sets off a cult of personality. And this is where Trump was, you know, Trump had a cult of personality among his followers, but he also had uh, violent opponents, as well as a lot of, you know, Republicans who were laying low, who, who just were like, um, you know, we've got to 
we don't want a Democrat in the White House, so I got to vote for this guy, but I'm holding my nose. That's right. Um, so, so, but the but the idea is a cult of personality has mechanisms that go across the entire population base. So you have stuff for little kids, right? With the Institute for Xi Jinping thought and studies in you know first grade, you have uh, mechanisms to control the elite, like you know essentially bribing, you know, cutting sweetheart deals for their businesses. You have essentially you're wrapping up the entire country. It's not just your loyalists that put you in the big chair. You have to have a program that you know essentially controls the entire population, yeah. um, and that happens through mass media and certainly social media as it's arisen in the last decade is, you know, an increasingly important part of it. And the cult of personality is around, um, you know, is, is often grievance driven, right? He's protect, he's fighting for us. Well, it's the easiest way psychologically to get people on your side. There's empathy of, I understand your position. I understand your situation. I'm here for you, but people's trust, you know, is something they have to give in that case. But if you if you can create common ground on a common enemy, yep. now everybody lines up without even thinking because yep. you're all joining on the tribal that 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 instinctive tribalism thing that every human being responds to cross culture, cross language, cross time periods doesn't matter. If you want to get people on the same page, present a common enemy for people to align mm-hmm. against. And they yeah. will be yours forever. Yeah. And so in order for, for you to establish that and to own all of the people, right? So you can't just own, you know, you have to take out the dissent. Yeah. So the first thing you got to do is, you know, as I just said, you got to, there's three things. You got to bribe the loyalists and punish the disloyal, right? So, you know, Xi Jinping did this with uh, his war on corruption when he first took office. That's how he got rid of all of his opponents. Right. It was under, quote, corruption tag. Um, and, you know, right now in, you know, what Putin did is he created all the oligarchs. He gave all of his buddies, all of the companies when the Soviet Union fell apart, all of the wealth was directed to his cronies. So they would support him. And if you crossed him, you got your money taken away. And a lot of, you know, there was a number of people that are former oligarchs that are living in London and, you know, that are exiled, um, because they crossed Putin. Um, and then, Right, so you crush the dissidents, whether that's secret police with their, you know, the the guy on the street or the people with, the, you know, some some degree of power. And then the last thing you do is the is you build a culture on untruth. You reward untruth. Right, it used to be said that you know in the Soviet days long ago, right, the truth, you know, the a key thing of communism was a lie told in the service of the state is a truth in the eyes of the state. Actually, that was a little sorry. Right. And, and that was very, very accurate. And so here's, you know, there's a couple of ludicrous examples, right? Kim, Kim Jong-il, uh, right? The last guy in South Korea, um, the North, I'm sorry, North Korea. Yeah. Whoops. Um, so when he played golf for the first time, he uh, scored 39 under par and he got 11 holes in one and it's, decided it was boring and bourgeois and never played again. Now, obvious, complete nonsense, right? right? Especially if you ever got to look at him, you know, the guy was like this weird sort of rodent-looking creature and um, doesn't look like he would have been able to figure out figure out which end of the club you held and which end of the, you hit the ball with. Um, but it's a loyalty test to tell lies 
and sell out your credibility to show that you're willing to be loyal to the state, to the person, and not to the truth. Right. And so the thing is that the lies eventually become bigger and bigger. So Kim Jong Il, uh, excuse me, Kim Jong Il with the golf score is now that his son has taken over. Uh, the lie is that he learned to drive when he was three years old. These lies get more and more bizarre right. because you have to keep your loyalists proving that they're loyal by showing that they are willing to do any degree of detachment from reality in order to serve you. And so I can't believe how we see even similar nature of lies in something like Scientology, just to bring it back down to that for, for the audience. L. Ron Hubbard was bucking Broncos at three years old. Yeah. You know, yeah. stuff like that. And Scientologists fall for it. They believe it. Why? Because they have to. Well, and, and what's interesting is that not only were people believing and repeating lies that Hubbard told about himself, he made that up about himself, but people were also making up random stuff about Scientology. You saw this in those little success stories in um, the magazines about how, you know, that uh, Tony Ortega used to publish tons of these on his blog about somebody who was like on, you know, sitting on a mountain above Phoenix and saw a storm cloud come in and, you know, use their OT powers to send the storm away or, um, OT phenomena, they called it. Yes, exactly. And so you have that. And you also have, you know, these just bizarre notions, uh, like that a lot of Scientologists and you might've even been around in the day, thought that Star Wars was a biography. Yes. It was a documentary. Yeah. And it, that's right. That's right. And and so, you know, yeah, you, exactly. You see this exactly in Scientology. And the mark of being enslaved, of being a proud slave is that you're making up bullshit that the leader hasn't even thought of. Like Star Wars is a documentary. That's right. That's right. Or, or you know, millions of other things. And that's how you know that you're you're cooked, is that you're you're helping to advance all of these these lies. And and so, you know, essentially all of that's necessary to hold in power somebody who is probably not able to gain power in a war, you know, where a war of ideas, you know, bets you. Right. So um there are a couple of dictators that started out as bus drivers, Nikolai Ceausescu, uh, who was the guy in Romania until communism fell in the eighties. He started out as a bus driver and then became a party, a junior party hack and, you know, was a loyalist and kind of ended up in the big chair. Nicolas Maduro, current president of Venezuela, same deal, bus driver, party hack, and, um, you know, was the toady that was in position to take over when Chavez died of cancer. Um, so, you know, they can't sell ability, they can't really sell results, so they have to resort to this authoritarian structure and this cult of personality to keep people loyal. Yep. And, you know, you can't just have a bunch of buddies from that you grew up with um, in order to uh, in order to keep people loyal. You have to have this entire institution at all levels of society getting everybody to, to be loyal. Um, and so you have, you know, I, and so the way I want to sort of start to move this back to China is to say, okay, let's look at different levels of cult countries and cults of personality. And we can start off easy with the comical things. So in West Africa, there's a country called Togo. I think it's right next to Ghana. It's about the size of West Virginia. Um, and it's 
basically desert and also, you know, some desert and some farmlands. And the guy there after post-colonial independence, the guy that got in the big chair there, um, did some really ludicrous stuff. So he had a troupe of a thousand dancing girls that would precede him at events and would sing songs and do uh, interpretive dance about how wonderful he was. So he had his own heavenly choir. Um, I'm sure that there was plenty of hooking up with the babes in the, in the dance troupe. Um, but then he also um, sold watches very inexpensively that had his face on the dial and it would pop out when the second hand hit the minute and his face would pop out from a little window, kind of like a cuckoo clock, so that you would be reminded of your wonderful dictator. Wow. Now, Togo is a country of relatively no consequence. Um, you know, they're not funding terrorists in Ghana or, you know, doing all sorts of, you know, they're really not doing anything bad anywhere else. You know, the population's miserable, the economy's a shambles. Um, and he, you know, he and his son and all are enriching themselves at the expense of everybody else. But it's a clown show with not much impact on the rest of the world. Um, another one is, um, you know, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. Um, you know, he was somewhat dangerous because he was backing some terrorist stuff. But he was fundamentally a clown show. Um, Libya had oil money, so they could at least have some semblance in the economy. Um, but the outfits, the bizarre speeches, the bizarre ideas are all somewhat entertaining. Um, another one of my favorites is Turkmenistan. That's one of the former socialist republics in Central Asia. Um, they have a lot of oil and gas. That's almost all of their exports. It's most of their economy. And so they can keep, you know, stuff humming along. They have a lot of money, uh, because of it. And they've had a succession of, you know, they've had two dictators. A third one just took over when his dad retired earlier this year. Um, who'd run a real clown show? The first guy, had a statue in the Capitol that always, it was gold-plated in it, and it moved so that he could always face the sun, this giant golden statue of himself. Um, when they built the new airport that he put in, um, he moved the control tower to the front of the terminal because he thought it looked nicer. Small problem with that is that you can't see what's actually happening in the ramp area, which is kind of where problems happen. And if you look at air disasters, um, most many of the biggest air disasters in history, including the, the, the biggest, the 1977 Santa Cruz to Tenerife crash in the Canary Islands, were due to runway uh, prob visibility problems with the air traffic controllers. So, in a diffusion of authority, when the president trusts the civil aviation authorities to know their stuff, he's not going to argue about where the control tower goes. But when you have no accountability, the president can fire anybody who says, who tells him, that's not a good idea, buddy. So you get a clown show, like an airport that's primed to kill people. I'm not aware of any major disasters that resulted from this, but it's certainly, I'm sure they had extra people out standing around radioing to the control tower to tell them what to do. You know, it's just a, uh, it's just a stupid waste. Um, you have to. You find yourself in a situation where things become five times harder, having to deal with the arbitrary demands being made, rather than, as you mentioned, the more efficient and long-term, productive system of that diffusion of authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you know, and then you look at the second guy, the guy who just retired. He was into bicycling, and he was into roads that went nowhere, and mass dances, and all sorts of other crazy stuff. So. 
you know, and and yeah, and, and both both of these generations of guys in Turkmenistan had their own books of wisdom, just like the sayings of Chairman Mao, that were the basis of the grade school curricula. There's just all sorts of crazy stuff. And so, but again, you know, they keep shipping oil or oil and gas, and you know, they just do their stupid things. So they aren't really affecting anybody else. They haven't really got any shooting wars with anybody, um, you know, with any of their neighbors. So it's a clown show. And yes, you know, the economy has massively underperformed what it could, but that's the case with most authoritarian. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that says authoritarian economies always underperform, right? One of the things that we do as capitalists is we allocate capital. So every day, I wrestle with the question of, should I put money in Google or Facebook or lots of other stocks? And there are many, many other people in the market that wrestle with that same decision every single day. The net result is that hopefully, and it doesn't always work out, but it usually does, we're putting money in the places where it's going to do the most good. Whereas in in an authoritarian economy, it's either going to cronies or it's going to, in the case of China, it's going into building apartments in service of the government's non-economic objectives, right? Which is to make the country look good and give people new houses, so you know, etc. And they don't have the ability to change course. They keep doing just like cults. When the doctrine doesn't work, when Scientology processes don't work, you do more of them because the doctrine's perfect. The only choice you have is do more of what the what you kind of see doesn't work. So. You know, every day I'm fighting the war of ideas, Google or Facebook. In an authoritarian system, they would pick one winner and they wouldn't go back and revisit the decision for decades until the world has changed and it's they're in a they're in a big hurry to to fix it. So so then, you know, all of this comes together and says, you know, if you have an authoritarian, especially when they have to, due to their weakness in power or holding power, they fall into what's called the dictator trap. The dictator trap is the things that got you power are going to bury you. They're going to wreck the country and they are going to be the instruments of your downfall. Yeah. You know, so the repression that you need to engage in when you first get into office to kind of purge the, you know, the active, the three or four guys that were your competitors for the big chair, eventually you repress enough people. And that's where we are in China right now. There's nobody left to tell Xi, Xi Jinping bad news. Right. And that's, yeah. and that is probably the number one, you know, you have to set up a spy system. You have to set up a confession of culture. You have to set up all this secret police crap. You have to do all this really crazy stuff as a dictator, but probably the most destructive thing you have to do is you have to get rid of anybody who's telling, you no. Yeah. Anybody. And, and those people, because those people are potentially the, um, the people that are going to, you know, be your competitors and they're going to try to oust you. That's right. Right. So competence is not a feature. That's right. It's a bug. Competence is a problem. And so we've certainly, um, you know, we certainly see this in any, you know, we've certainly seen this in Scientology with David Miscavige purging the ranks and spying on, you know, people like Pat Boyko for decades and doing all of this because, and now there's nobody that tells him no. There's nobody that, you know, supervising when when you have no accountability you will go off the rails i have accountability every day if if my 
investment decisions don't get don't make money. People take their money and go elsewhere. Right. That's right. You know, if my geopolitical analysis, I'm sorry. Well, I'm just going to say this just as a point here. What we're talking about is a mechanical point, not an ideological one. And don't confuse this because it doesn't matter what system you're pushing or trying to run or operate. This is a mechanical problem. If you're a dictator and you're getting rid of all the no people and you're only surrounding yourself with sycophantic yes men, it doesn't matter what system you're trying to make work. It's going to fail. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's a company. You know, it's about, it's a mechanical problem we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. in other words, it's what we call a physics issue or a structural issue. Yeah, that's right. And the physics, you know, the physics of, you know, if I'm in an airplane, I'm heading towards a ridge, and the physics say I can't climb fast enough to clear the ridge, my skill as a pilot's irrelevant. Exactly. I'm going in. Right. I'm, I'm going to get killed. Well, and I only bring this up and highlight it with underlines and bold faces because people confuse this with failures of a of a kind of ideology or system or religion, and it's not that. It's not the Catholicism or the Buddhism or the communism or the or the republicanism that that is bringing about that downfall in that situation. It's the structural problem, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say exactly. You know, communism's structural problem is that it's a central command and control economy, and it can't change very quickly. Even if they had modern tools a hundred years ago when the Soviet Union was founded, when the Russian Revolution happened, even if they had modern tools, a command and control economy just will never work. And you can't react fast enough. You have the, the more diffuse the authority to run the economy. You know, millions of companies making decisions of where to spend, millions of people deciding where to spend. Um, the better off, the better off you are. And the best contrast I know of is South Korea versus North Korea. End of the Korean War in the 1950s, so 75, yeah, you know, almost 70 years ago. At the end of the Korean War, North Korea was the industrial powerhouse, and they had all the money. South Korea was a bunch of poor farmers. They were hicks. It was a rural country, no money, people living in huts. It was, you know, it was a basket case. And because of consistently bad decisions on the part of the North, um, and consistently good decisions on the part of the South, the South now has 10 or 20 times the per capita GDP of the North despite all the mineral resources and industrial resources, which have now completely decayed and become useless, um, that in the North. And, you know, so so it's a staggering reversal um, of, of fortune in relatively in, in one person's lifetime. So... It's not like people didn't predict that. It's, yeah. It was all there to see. It's just that people chose not to believe it. Yeah, although nobody really, I think, predicted the South Korean, the, the extent to which the South Koreans would, you know, completely just, you know, blossom in the way that they have. Oh, no, for sure. I was really referring more to the North Korean decline yes. as predictable, you know, given its system and its authoritarian overtones and the fact that 
you know, it's oversized military. It's 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 disgusting. Um, you know, the, the way it invests the resources it does have yeah. so as to benefit a single individual over the entire country. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think the other part of, so let's, let's move on to the last part of the dictator trap. I'm going to say, okay, so the last part of the dictator trap is that despite all of your ability to punish wrongdoing, right, you can execute anybody whenever you want. You're ultimately dependent on people to tell the truth. Even if your rule and legitimacy is built on propaganda and lies. So Putin is discovering this the hard way. He goes into Ukraine, reading all the readiness reports, thinking that he's got the second best army in the world, or second best military in the world. And yet, all of a sudden, you discover the tires are crap. Nobody has fuel. We didn't have the food we thought. All the tanks that were pulling out of storage when things didn't go as planned have had the transmissions pulled out and sold on eBay. Yeah, you know, stolen by the people that were supposed to maintain them. You know, in the U.S. military, yeah, we have tanks in storage, but you know what? We have inspectors that come through, and their job is to make sure that that actually those tanks will actually start, and they go and actually start them. Right. In Russia, the inspectors inspecting the tanks in storage are the ones that are selling the engines. Exactly. And you know, and so. All of a sudden, you discover as the leader that when you were depending on truth in a culture that has been built on theft and lies, all of a sudden you discover that you are seriously up the creek without a paddle. And so, in this, in the course of you know less than a year, Putin has gone from being feared as the head of a giant military and as holding this energy club over Europe to being mocked and laughed at, and he's getting his butt kicked by. You know, certainly he's getting his butt kicked by Ukraine. Yes, they are still in the fight in some part by, uh, you know, U.S. weapon, U.S. and European weapons supplies. But they are also in the fight because they have gone from this central control where Putin's now making all the decisions to a system where, you know, they, they are organized like NATO, right? The, the guys on the ground, the platoons on the ground are making their own decisions. The objective is, you know, take out this depot. You guys figure out how to do it because you're down there. We're back in headquarters in Kiev. Yep. So they moved to this Western model. The Russians are still in this feudal, you know, czarist, monarchical model um, because Putin has taken out all the opposition. He, you know, if you look at the guy, the Sergei uh, Shogu, who is the uh, defense minister. He was a guy that was like the minister of earthquake preparedness. And then Putin started hanging out with him socially. And the reason that he's in that chair is that he's an ethnic minority from a tiny place called Tuva, um, which nobody has ever heard of. And he's Asian. He's not a, he's not a Russian. So he'll never get in the big chair. He'll never be able to knock off Putin because nobody will accept him as the next leader. That's why he's in charge of defense, not because he knows anything about the army. He never served a day in uniform until he was the head of the army. Right. And so, so that's the problem you get with it. It's, and I don't know that anybody in the West totally, I mean, not anybody, but I don't think the general person listening to this right now totally gets just how deep the corruption goes in that system over there. It's yeah. really bad. Yeah, it's, uh, again, days worth of stuff. 
to uh, to talk about there. Um, so, so okay. So we've talked about clown countries and we've talked about the dictator trap. So some countries, you know, that are semi-dangerous are North Korea, which I know you've done a lot of stuff on, and let's, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much no. there because that's been well covered. Venezuela is also semi-dangerous. Um, you know, again, they've had a resource-based economy, you know, with the very large oil reserves. Um, they've been exporting their, you know, their sacred doctrine is called Bolivarian socialism, named after Simon Bolivar, the, you know, great hero of decolonizing, you know, 200 years ago. Uh, all over South America. Um, and so they've had this doctrine, which is, you know, the usual garbage. Um, and they have the external enemy who's trying to take the country away, which is the U.S. So they've set up all of the conditions for authoritarian leader to emerge. And, you know, Chavez did this, what, 25 years ago. Um, and, you know, but they've been able to keep the economy, they were able to keep the economy going for a while. Um, and so they nationalized the oil industry and they use that oil sales to generate subsidies to, you know, help, you know, keep the poor people in line, right? So handouts to the poor kept them employed. The problem was that he crushed so much dissent by installing cronies into the oil company that oil production went down by like 60%. When they got rid of Exxon and they got rid of all the people that knew what they were doing, replaced them with party hacks, all of a sudden the oil stopped flowing. And then they started to hollow out the middle class and the business owners and all of that. And now it's completely turned into a shit show that's like the second worst in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. So that takes a certain amount of doing to take that amount of oil wealth and turn yourself into a, you know, a garbage heap. So, you know, they've, they've had the problem with, you know, funding Colombian guerrillas and causing other forms of trouble. Um, but the thing was, they didn't understand or they ignored how hollow their economy really was because Venezuelan oil is crappy quality. It's the worst variety that's mined in the world in terms of its ability to, it's impurities that corrode um, refineries. There's only like a couple, like I don't know the exact number, but two or three refineries in the world, most of them in the U.S., that can take Venezuelan oil. You can't just like ship it to a refinery in England if you piss off the U.S., right? So the U.S. sanctions are very effective, right? We won't take, we won't buy Venezuela. Too bad. Sorry, guys. And that's got nowhere to go. Of course, the big problem, and Putin's about to learn this with oil. Big problem with oil wells. And oh, by the way, bad news for conspiracy whack jobs who think that the oil market is rigged. There's a small problem with that conspiracy. You can't turn oil wells off. You can slow them down a little bit, but you can't turn them off and come back in a year and start them up again. So oil starts piling up, and it's got nowhere to go. The global oil storage capacity is like measured in days. You know, so if you if oil demand goes down for either globally or because or for your country, you got to shut down wells, and you ain't going to get them started again. And that's what's happening in Venezuela, and that is going to happen in Russia. Certainly this winter, as the eastern fields that are supplying China. Um, start to deteriorate because all the Western experts from Halliburton and all those places are gone in the wake of sanctions. Mm. So the economy is, when you're a dictator, you think that you have the ability to affect things. You think you have the ability to, you know, turn on, you know, to increase oil production. Well, if you pissed off the experts that you brought in from outside yep. and 
you know, you can't buy those people because they're under sanction. They can't legally go help you out. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really quite amazing, the unintended consequences of dictator actions. And again, structural issues with the whole dictator problem in the first place that it inevitably presents. Oil, food, uh, raw material production, refinement. I mean, every level of the economy is benefited by that diffusion of authority, mm-hmm. which the dictator problem prevents from happening. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, these are hard problems to solve in a functioning in a functioning government. Yep. And, you know, the, the economy is, you know, civilization is fundamentally fragile in many respects. You know, the the economy, right, if if all of a sudden, and this is why China is blustering about going to war with Taiwan. It's mostly bluster. Mm. Um, to, to land enough troops to subjugate Taiwan would be a nearly impossible logistical phenomenon. Mm. You know, they might try bombing Taiwan and they'll, kill a lot of innocent people, but they won't be able to actually invade and get stuck there. Because what's going to happen outside of what's called the first island chain, in other words, Japan, you know, Philippines, Indonesia, all of that, the U.S. is going to sit outside the range of the Chinese Navy and is going to turn ships away that are either carrying Chinese goods out for export, or they're carrying oil or other inputs that are necessary to keep the Chinese economy going. Yeah. You know, the economy is interdependent. You can't sit there and say, we're going to do something. You know, the U.S. has put a line out that says, guys, don't do this. But the dictator has struck, has stirred up the nationalistic, you know, China is ours. It was taken from us. We were wronged by these colonialists. And by the way, you know, colonialists, you know, if you look at what the British did with the opium wars and stuff, you know, the British colonialists did horrible things in China in the 19th century. You know, a lot of colonial stuff on a part of everybody's form. Um, the well, you have the Japanese so, invasion of China as well. I mean, it wasn't right. just Americans or British people subjugating these people. These countries have been subjugating each other <laughs> for centuries. Oh, absolutely. But I think you know, but there's right now the marketing is you know the the Western colonialists are yes. the are the evil. Never mind, you know. That's but, the, but the thing line is, over here of all places, and it really drives me crazy because it ignores so much of what we've been talking about already. Yeah. So, so, so basically, wrong. I'm not saying it was a good thing that India was subjugated or that the opium wars happened. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying that these are incidents. They are validly awful incidents that happen in history. But let's not pretend. Uh, the white people are the only people running around the planet doing this kind of thing. Oh yeah, no, I I I agree completely. Yeah. And and by the way, you know the dictators do tend to underestimate, you know, their power. Yeah. So they may have power within the country, but you know, if, if we look at colonialism, it happened in a time where there was enormous disparity in industrial production and therefore armament production. So India was subjugated with something like. 30,000 troops from the British East India Company, which had a, a company that had its own private army. It was a tiny fraction of the Indian population. Yes. Because they were able to show up and fight in a way that the Indian subcontinent was completely unprepared for. Yeah. But over time, you know, today, 
Well, the Indians are flying the same airplanes. Well, their their fleet's a bit older than than the West, but they got airplanes with missiles too. You know, and they're they're going to be buying a lot more from the West now that they've seen what crap the Russian equipment is that they mostly have. Um, you know, the Japanese are flying. You know, the the Japanese were the big economic guns in Asia, and you know, but they're flying the same stuff as the U.S. You know, the Japanese are. You know, there's no disparity. You know, the, the, the level, the power imbalance between adjacent countries is far less than it's ever been. So it's much harder to win a war. Um, you know, so China versus Vietnam. China's invaded Vietnam, in, you know, many times in history. And while we think of Vietnam as a tiny backward country, their military is actually punching pretty much above their weight. So I wouldn't bet against the Vietnamese. Yeah, they'll have a tough time because of the size of China. but you know, they're gonna they're gonna put some they're gonna put some ourselves. <laughs> you know, try to go in there and deal with things and just mop it up in a couple months. Yeah, good fucking luck with that. You know. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think you know, but but there's this so there's this fantasy that you know China can go in and you know reclaim Taiwan. But but anyway, okay. So we we're talking about Venezuela. We we're talking about um, okay. So we we're talking about semi dangerous countries. So we have clown shows semi-dangerous countries, and now we have the two really dangerous countries, and that's Russia and China. So let's take a little look at Russia first, because we're learning a lot of lessons here that can give us some predictive power about China, right? And so, you know, yeah, there was some cultish, cult of personality around Stalin, because Stalin was just so deranged that they had to put in some of that around, uh, around him in order to just, like, get through the day. Um, then Khrushchev and, and later, you know, were less cult-like, um, you know, not, they were caught, but there was a, there was a functioning system. It didn't help Stalin was a complete psychotic maniac. Yeah. And he killed more people than the Nazis did. That's right. So, and against the population that, you know, I mean, we're talking about killing 20% of the population. So a number like that. Is look a, at Russia on a map. And Russia back then on a map, you were just, you're floored, 12, 13 time zones. I mean, huge swaths of territory and unimaginably large numbers of, of people we're talking about. Yeah. Well, the, the population of Russia, though, at the time of World War II was, I think it's 100 and, 120 today or 160 today, 160. I can't remember if it's 116 or 160, but it's, it's substantially less than the U.S., um, in a massive area, but in the time of you know the Soviet the Soviet population was roughly comparable to the U.S. When that fell apart, they lost half of the population, um, and and so in World War II, if we kind of circle it back, the comparable numbers of Russian population was probably seventy five million. Oh, okay, and okay. So I, maybe I, maybe a little bit less. An idea of, of the number of people there, but fair enough. And, and so, you know, when you consider Russia, right, um, the eastern half of the country, um, the eastern half of the country is unpopulated. Yeah. Um, I think it's Yakutsky, one of the ethnic enclaves. It's bigger than Texas and Alaska put together, and it has like a half a million people. Right. Um, sort of the Wyoming of Russia. Yeah, it's like, it, but even more deserted. Yeah. And... You know, um, the, the very far east, the part that's close to the U.S., the, you know, the province is the size of, 
Colorado and it has like 50,000 people of it, of which the majority live in one city, mm. you know, and it's, so there's a whole lot of nothing. Um, that's true of Siberia. That's true. And then you get down into the South in the deserts. So most of it's uninhabitable. And the part in the West is really okay farmland, but not great. Yeah. They don't have, and so, you know, it's not a, it's not a great, it's not a great place to, to try to run a country that big. So you have to, and, and because you don't have, you know, there's only like a couple of rail lines that go east to west. So holding all of this together is a natural tendency towards uh, an authoritarian rule. You have to, you really have to deal with, you know, dissent. Um, it's no accident that Putin is drafting most of the people he's mobilizing from all these ethnic areas in the east so that the, the, the you know, ethnically Russians um, are not going to be feeling the heat for the war, right? These are the, you know, he's hollowing out the economy of the East. Unfortunately, he's also opening that up to okay, someday the Chinese may decide to invade to get access to the mineral wealth there. Mm. That would be a big problem, and he, he's making himself less able to defend against that. So, so Russia, because of the size, because of the fact that there's not a lot of good land, but there are these pockets of resources, it's really hard to hold this country together. So there's there's always been this tendency of this essentially empire. It's a, it's really economically and structurally like an empire. There's a wealthy part in the West that is essentially pulling resources out and money out of the rest of the, the, the vast majority of the country. And so it's really colonially controlling them just like empires of the past. So even though it's a country, it's still an empire internally. And yes, they're also trying to take over Ukraine and be an empire externally as well. So, so you have this history of authoritarianism and as a cult country, although with Stalin, that hasn't been seen in a while. But, you know, Putin knows that he's a weak candidate. He managed to sneak in essentially into the big chair. Everybody goes, well, he's KGB, and everybody knows that the KGB is central to Russia. But when he was in the KGB, he was an agent operating in East Germany. That's kind of like being a CIO guy operating in Des Moines. It's friendly territory. The good guys got posted to, you know, the good guys got posted to Paris. And Washington was the, the, you know, if you were a a KGB guy in Washington, you you were good. Yeah. Right. So, so the fact that the guy is not good enough to get posted to even a slightly unfriendly country like Luxembourg, right. you know, ought to tell you that he was not viewed as the A team right. back in the day. And so here he ends up in the big chair, and you know that he's going to be pushing authoritarian, you know, pushing his, you know, cult of personality. He's got to. That's right. Because he's a very weak guy. And. and such parallels with G. Well, exactly. We'll talk about him we'll in a little bit. So yeah. this is why I wanted to talk about Russia first, because yeah. it gives us some ability to think about, you know, about where China is going to go. And yeah. so, so Putin, you know, his choice was to be a kleptocrat instead of a power mad guy. So what his, you know, the, the people that got punished were the people who got in the way of he and his cronies looting the system. And so the way, the biggest way you step out of line is if you took more than your share. So if you were some low-level guy, you could steal a certain amount, but you better not be stealing more than your boss. 
So if you got too good stealing, that's when you got into trouble. Or if you got uppity and tried to make a power play to rise up the hierarchy and you hadn't you know, bribed enough people yet, that's when you got into trouble. So it was a kleptocracy. You know, there were certain times that there was a cult of personality, you know, like you'd see this picture of him on a horse, you know, all buff. You know, that was like 20 years ago. I don't think he looks that way today. Yeah. Um, but so there were some things to try and make him look cool. But now we're starting to see the cult of personality. Now they're starting to be, you know, Putin thought. Now they're starting to be um, all sorts of nonsense after the war and when it started to really not go well. You know, and and so that's going to continue as long as he's in power. He's got to, you know, and this is why he's co-opted the church so aggressively is to, to legitimize uh, him among the power base in the rural, you know, his power base is mostly the rural, you know, kind of ethnic Russian world. I think that, you know, the intelligentsia, the educated, you know, the software developers and whatnot, those guys are all, you know, a little bit more realistic. But I think that the cult is among, you know, kind of the rural, uh, the rural poor. So the church is big there. So he's got to co-op them. Um, and he's playing on the sense of grievance, right? This is very natural in Russia. That Russian, you know, people, Russian culture has a very outsized view of its importance in the world. Um, you know, and and they used to be almost a power in Europe on the level of Germany, and and so they, you know, the imperial era, they kind of, you know, think it's very easy to convince them that, you know, even in the imperial era, that there's a, you know, that they're the peers of Europe, and that they have. They also have this belief that they have contributed the culture uh, to their neighbors, right? So this whole thing about Ukraine, there's no Ukrainian culture. They're all, you know, peasants. And we contributed the, the beauty of the Russian language. We contributed all the literature and all the science and all the education. Never mind that the Ukrainians have a longer history than the Russians and that they have done a lot of good stuff. Uh, scientifically, they make very nice jet engines, which the Russians are not doing so well at. Um that's a very hard thing to do, by the way. Um, that's kind of the, if you've made it to a first world technology country, the real acid test is microprocessors and jet engines. And so far, by the way, Russia is not there at all. Um, they have uh, one, you know, a couple jet engines, but they're miracles of uh, inefficiency and mechanical unreliability. Um, Chinese are sort of getting there on jet engines, but they still have quite a ways to go. It's a lot trickier than you think. And they're certainly not there on chips. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we take these things for granted because we're surrounded by them in the West, but we don't realize that very simple, simple piece of information that producing these things isn't simple, even if they are ubiquitous in our lives. It's just, it's an interesting counterpoint in our psychology, I think, when we think about this stuff that we don't, that we just, we basically, what I'm saying is we take this stuff for granted. Yeah, I, I've invested in the semiconductor business um, for 25 years. And I'm not an expert in it, but peripherally been involved. And um, the even harder business than chip making is making the chip equipment that makes the chips. Right. That is stuff that is so far out on the bleeding edge of physics, you cannot even imagine how hard it is. And it now takes staggering amounts of money, 10 billion and up, to build a chip factory for the next generation of chips. Um, the US just signed an agreement, by the way, 
uh, globally that limits the ability to transfer that technology to China. Yeah. So all of the chip engineers that were helping China build its semiconductor industry have now left. Um, they will never be able to get that equipment for the next generation of chips. Uh, neither will Russia or anybody else that's hostile to the U.S. and the West. Um, and that will significantly limit uh, their ability to develop high-profit industries. Um, it's it's a it's a huge blow. Yeah. But, um, and but it's, I think, it's not something you solve with a little industrial espionage. It's it's a huge huge problem. Uh, you can get somebody to come in and tell you how the next generation of extreme ultraviolet lithography machines work, but building them. I, I I meet with these guys. I occasionally run into guys from ASML, which is the country that or the company that is the only ones that can build that equipment, and you know, it's so staggeringly, unbelievably hard. You cannot even imagine how hard it is. Yeah. You know, SpaceX and, you know, building airplanes and stuff is really hard. This is just so much harder. You, you can't even imagine. And and that's, you know, that's something that, you know, is a, by the way, we're going to see a lot of economic warfare. It's working really well versus Russia. And we're going to see that happening uh, a lot uh, more, and especially versus China. Um, so so this inferiority complex versus the West is making it very easy. You know, Putin's been exploiting it for a long time, but he's, and he's a victim of it as well, because he's been obsessed with, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union and, you know, the paranoid fact that the West had something to do with it. You know, obviously we were in opposition to the Soviet Union, but it imploded based on its own economic incompetence, fundamentally. And, you know, we just had to just sit back and just not do something stupid, and it would fall apart eventually. Um, so, again, so, then, so entirely different from Scientology, if I, if I may bring that in yeah. again. Mm -hmm. you know, it's like yeah. we're taking all the pot shots and doing all the exposure and certainly speeding up the process. But as I said from day one on my channel, Destruction has been in its DNA from the very beginning. It's, exactly, it cannot help but kill itself eventually. Yeah, and so and so when Putin overestimated his power and overestimated his ability to make this war with Ukraine happen, he basically blew up the entire country. Yeah. GDP is going to decline. It's going to decline a lot more next year. He pissed off all his oil customers. The one thing you don't want to do with oil customers is. Uh, especially when they're using it for heating in the winter, is interrupt supplies because at some point it becomes problematic enough they're going to figure out how to either do without or go somewhere else. Yep. And you can't turn those wells off. So he just blew up his biggest single sector is economy. And because of the kleptocracy, nobody, you know, how many people want to buy clothes from Russian fashion designers? How many people wear Russian watches instead of Rolexes? How many people drive Russian cars not in Russia? How many people, you know, wear Russian perfume or hire Russian interior designers? Right. Exactly. Nobody. It's all the stuff that we, again, we, we don't see it because we're surrounded by it and just take all these things for granted. And there's an entire sector of the world that is producing. But they have, so, so we blew up the country. He blew up the one industry that people want to trade with him for. Yeah. 
got them embargoed so that he can't buy Mercedes Benz's anymore or Boeing's or uh, even iPhones or Visa cards. None of that works anymore. And they have nothing else to sell. There's nothing else that comes out of Russia that anybody else anywhere in the world wants. So he blew the whole thing up. He blew up his international reputation, and he showed that there's no real hazard in refusing to do business with them and trying to, and for everybody who wants to, to try to drive more nails in the coffin. China was supposed to bail them out with this alliance that was announced earlier uh, in, in early in 2022, this wonderful brotherly love fest. Um, and when the sanctions went down, China realized they're not, they don't want to get their hand in the cookie jar and try and help out Russia. Yeah, they're kind of sneaking some stuff in there and they're buying some national oil at a discount, but you know, they haven't really pissed us off yet. But we'll shut them down. Secondary sanctions are very effective. So, so this is an absolutely devastating consequence of the authoritarian trap. You can blow up, you can blow up your country. You know, Venezuela has been screwing themselves into the ground for decades with the, the Chavez and now Maduro. Um, but now, when you have some degree of interconnection and some degree of size, you can blow yourself up so much faster than any of these dictators have recognized. And the cult of personality buys you nothing. And yet, it's all you got. And so, if we think about China, this is exactly the situation that they're in. So... And let's talk about Xi now, because this is, let's connect the dots on what's going on there with this. Okay. So first off is how does he get in the big chair? Yeah. Well, the end, the results, you know, there's always been, and the the exact workings are very obscure, and there's a lot of Chinaologists, um, Sinologists, I guess, who, you know, study this, and I don't think anybody really understands, but there's a lot of backroom dealings of, you know, these people are aligned in various factions with you know, people who have, you know, these sort of senior officials have networks of people that are loyal to them. And so when it's time to choose a new leader, they all kind of lock themselves away for some long period of time until they kind of agree on somebody. And this last time... Part of how a pope gets gets chosen. <laughs> yeah, and then, you you know, you come up with a compromise guy who turns out to be kind of a problem, you know, like the last guy. And now, you know, and... And so, so she was the compromised guy. He was not really seen as all. He was seen as mostly harmless, right? And so he was seen as not, that he could be influenced by all of the different factions. And so they finally said, okay, we're never going to, none of us is going to win and get our guy in the chair. So we pick this guy who's harmless and kind of sort of neutral. Now, of course, that's exactly the recipe when you pick the, the guy who's harmless and not too bright, that's exactly the recipe for what you get. So first thing he has to do is consolidate power and and make sure that there's no no one, none of those factions, not just the, the strongest one, but none of those factions can bump him off. So he launches this giant anti-corruption probe. Now, corruption is a big problem in China, right? That, you know, with all of these, the centralization of state-owned enterprises, the centralization of, you know, banks lending at the direction of the government, there's all kinds of corruption there. Something, some estimates say that a third of local government tax revenues go directly into the pockets of officials. A and third? a staggering amount, there's, there's all of these local financing vehicles to fund apartment construction, and the corruption there is just beyond belief. Right. So... So there's so much of this going on. And so 
an anti-corruption campaign is a mom and apple pie kind of issue, but it's really a way of just purging people that, you know, anybody gets accused of corruption, they get yanked out of office, you know, whether or not they actually get charged later doesn't matter. So, you know, he takes out out. I'm sorry. Let's not also forget that this is in the tradition. This is almost tradition in China with the various revolutions and things that have happened over the last 200 years there. They're calling people out as disloyal, impure, corrupt. This is routine SOP over there during these times of tumultuous transfers of power and changes in their in their. Right. This is this is. It's a habituated thing. It's not some new thing that he's running an anti-corruption campaign. Right. This but is his playbook over there. It is, but he's done it on a on a you know massive. Yeah, you know, he's done it on a massive scale. Yeah, and of course the problem is that when you have a lot to lose, you also have a lot of stake in maintaining your power by whatever means is necessary. Yeah. Right. So if you're the Secretary of Treasury and you piss off the president, he's going to ask you to resign. He's not going, unless you, you know, he's not going to immediately resort to uh, getting you arrested for corruption, you know, and try and ruin it off. You resign and you would a consulting gig at Goldman Sachs. Exactly. You know, and so that's a, that's a difference in the system. The, the downside stakes are, yeah, you lose your job. But if you were a smart enough guy to get the job in a functioning, you know, governmental organization, if you were smart and not a crony like so many in the Trump administration were, um, if you were smart enough to get the job, you'll be okay. You're not going to be out on the streets. But when your choice is suck up to management or get jailed, you know, you're going to, yeah, you're going to do whatever. So for sure, it's a more extreme system. Yeah. And so she is, you know, she was running this anti-corruption campaign on a scale that hadn't been seen before. Yeah. And, and so he basically, you know, but I think, Ultimately, he's not running a kleptocracy. You know, Putin purged people to get people in and make himself rich by making his buddies rich and then siphoning money from them. So for Putin, it's really been about the money and not the case for Xi. I don't think he has a major stash in Swiss bank accounts or any of that nonsense. I'd say it's really about power. And, and it's also about establishing this legacy, you know, that he knows that Nobody thought he was all that smart, so now he's going to try to prove that he's the smartest guy ever. And that's what leads to the Institute for the Study of Xi Jinping Thought, just like there was an Institute for the Study of Chairman Mao Thought. He's only the second Chinese leader to do this. My little red books. Everybody had to have them. Yep. Read them daily from your affirmations from Mao. Yep. And so that ultimately allows Xi to subvert... um, you know, the, the succession mechanism, and now he's essentially president for life, a dictator for life. Right. Um, normally, it was, you know, you've got 10 years, and that's it. Just like here, you get, you know, you get two terms, and you're done. Doesn't matter if they love you and want you for more, you're done. Right. And so that's, you know, that's a key, you know, that's a key issue. I mean, Putin did the same thing. You know, he's yeah. voted into office, and yet we all know, yeah, sure. But this is, you know, a key piece that, that had been a key distinction of the Chinese system, which is that even if it was ultimately a dictatorship, you're time limited. That's one form of accountability. Yeah. So now the only accountability is that he ends up, you know, uh, 
that he ends up getting carried out in the box. There is no accountability. And so, you know, the, the, the basic situation is that he is absolutely taking authoritarian stuff up a notch because he's purged all the factions that might take him out. And, you know, in the past, if you were, if you were part of the faction that got you into the chair, you had guys that had your back. So you didn't have to worry about getting overthrown somehow. So he's, you know, she is now different. This is, this is a very different situation. Um, part of a Game of Thrones situation. It is. Okay. Right? And, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so now you have also the, right, so that's the, you know, control of the elite. So he's got that. So now he's got to control of the rank and file. And that's, that's more important now than ever, now that the growth miracle is done. Right now that GDP is contracting, now that you've got COVID, but but even without COVID, GDP growth is over. And that's the cornerstone, uh, employment growth and you know wage growth to get people out of poverty has been the cornerstone of the legitimacy of government for the last 40 years. That's now in question. So you have to start implementing control mechanisms. And here the Chinese have done what the Russians haven't done. Uh, which is harnessing technology at an unprecedented rate, right? Facial recognition, apps, social network tracking, censorship of media, all of this stuff. And so there's a carrot and a stick. You're not allowed to say bad things. You might go to jail. But there's also the carrot of if you behave nicely and in a way that reflects well on Chinese culture, you get privileges, like being able to travel abroad. That's right. That whole social credit system. I've been asked... That many times and asked to comment on it. And I didn't want to until I could present the bigger picture of the context of it, because it's one part in a in a in a bigger whole of these are the crumbs science, you know, that the Chinese people are given by their government in order to climb socially and have some degree of status, but it really is a control system. Yeah. And it it, it exactly is. And that's really aimed at kind of the mobile, you know. Uh, middle class and upper middle class workforce. So these are professional people in the cities uh, and so forth who are out of poverty but still have something to lose. Yeah. And then the riot police, the people's armed police, are the control mechanism for out in the sticks. You know, where you still have a staggering amount of the population that's you know deeply impoverished and that occasionally marches on city hall. You you, you just use the stick to club them into line because. They can't afford the mobile devices. They can't afford the internet. You know, and forget as well that this is a country that has concentration camps. Let's, yeah. let's really not forget that because it's mm-hmm. a really important point. You know, you have ethnic and racial and religious minorities imprisoned in this country. And yeah. the world kind of just doesn't really do a whole lot about that. We comment on yeah. it, talk about it, try to expose it. But that's about it. And even sanctions against China for human rights violations or talk about this will have you canceled immediately by China. And there are economic repercussions. Just ask the NBA about, you know, and yet this is happening over there. This let's not forget about that little tiny fact. Yeah. And and so, by the way, that feeds into another issue of why do, you know, the China, excuse me, the Chinese of uh, Xi overestimating his power. So another fun thing to read about is what's called wolf warrior diplomacy. Wolf warrior 
is a series of movies that's sort of the Chinese equivalent of the Rambo movies. Just jingoistic, simplistic flag waving. And so they have had embraced this foreign policy that they basically go around and say, you know, we're going to tell you how you're going to behave. You're not treating us with enough respect. You're going to do what we want or else. And not any kind of conversation. And this is not just, you know, beating up on Vietnam or any of the neighboring countries or Mongolia or what have you. It's, you know, insulting the government of Sweden. It's, it's just, you know, we're in charge. You know, we're going to tell you what to do. We're not going to operate as partners. We're going to tell you what to do. Too bad. And and so that's another feature of a dictatorship is, you know, he's trying to push things faster than they want to go. And he's, you know, essentially overestimating his power. At the same time, things are... I wish, I wish people could see the difference there. There's a lot of sloppy thinkers out there who send, who seem to think that because the United States or Western powers or Western culture pushes things like human rights like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that we're somehow overlords of morality on this planet or something. And it's like, you really got to get the contextual differences here. Are we trying to oppress people with human rights or are we trying to liberate them with human rights? You know? Well, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a very clear, and I think, you know, we, to, to go back and look at some of the stuff we talked about, given that autocratic states underperform over time, yeah. there's a really good, value to human rights, which is you drive economic growth. Exactly. It's a good idea. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you may be a less powerful guy in an economy five times as big. That's probably better than being the emperor of Togo, which is a country that, you know, it's a joke cult of personality in a country that nobody cares about. That's right. Except for the people that live there. That's right. You know, nobody goes on vacation in Togo. Nobody knows what they export. Not much of any, you know. Yeah, it's just this little thing. country, as you say. Yeah. And it's like, you know, like compare that to Rwanda. Rwanda went through this horrible genocide. They got things screwed on straight and they're growing like weeds. You know, there's still some problems there in terms of authoritarian to a certain extent, but, you know, they're driving growth and Togo's nowhere. Interesting. Again. So, so, you know, human rights is a smart business decision, ultimately. Yeah. So, you some freedom and some independence of thinking and action, and you let them go, and it's amazing what people can do. Yeah, and that's the opposite of the dictator problem. It's the it's the liberty problem. It's got a whole set of problems connected with it. It's loud. It's confusing. It's annoying. It's argumentative, but it's actually a better system despite all that than the very quiet, very sedate, very controlled authoritarian oppression. Yeah. I think, you know, Churchill, Winston Churchill said, you know, democracy is the worst system of government invented, ever invented, except for all the others. That's right. That's right. So we just talked about how uh, she has, uh, has really reduced the information flow of dissenting information to the Chinese population. But let's also look at what makes China especially dangerous at this point, which is the information flow that's getting to Xi is just non-existent. Mm. So 
you know, this is actually a more dangerous situation than what's happening with Putin. And with Putin, it is plenty dangerous, right? He thought that he had an army that could go in and take Ukraine in three days, which would have resulted in fairly minimal damage to anybody. Would have been bad, but, it, you know, and it would have been geopolitically a problem, but it wouldn't have turned out to have blown up his entire country if he was executed. Right. But now she is dealing with stuff that can blow up the country on a much larger scale than Russia, not just because he has 10 times the population and 10 times the GDP, but because of the effects on the world economy and because of the, the difficulty of getting China back on track, much less the world economy back on track. Mm. So, so one of the great cases is that um, I think it was late, I think it was last year, um, there were problems with the electrical grid. Um, and I, I read about them at the time, and I, I didn't go back and relook uh, to refresh my memory for, for this discussion. But um, they were having major outages in, in, in large cities. And we're talking like Shanghai, you know, which is really the economic hub, kind of like New York is the economic hub. Beijing is the capital, and they do a lot of stuff there. But Shanghai is really the financial and economic powerhouse of the country. So they were having serious power outages in a bunch of cities. He didn't know about it for months. Nobody did anything because months, like six months of random rolling blackouts of, of sides. My goodness. Could you imagine something like that happening in Texas or in New York or Los Angeles or Chicago and, and Biden not knowing anything about it? Yeah, and and that his staff, you know, that everybody was working, conspiring to keep the information from him. Oh my right? god! So he couldn't have gotten it, you know. So she didn't hear about it on TV, you know, assuming he watches TV or in newspapers, because assuming he reads newspapers. And none of his people told him that, you know, a bunch of people were without, you know, without light, and factories were shutting down because nobody wanted to be the guy that brought the bad news in. And I don't know how he finally found out, but months later, he discovers that there's an electricity problem, and then he cracks heads, and he gets fixed pretty quick. But nobody wants to bring in the bad news. Wow. And the problem in this functional, in this dysfunctional system is because of that problem we mentioned earlier about diffusion of power, you're not allocating enough power to the people below you. I don't mean electrical power, it's ability to get their jobs done. So not only are they not telling you, but they don't have the independence of action and authority to be able to just deal with it themselves. Right. Exactly. You know, and compare that, you know, remember the big Texas uh, power blackout when the ice storm hit, whenever that was last year, uh, you know, the president, the president was on the phone immediately. Exactly. And the governor and everybody else was down there. Yeah. Well, except for Cruz, it was taken off to Cancun. You beat me to it. I was exactly going to say that. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, so basically, you have this incredible power vacuum, and you know, not electrical, but you, but you. Oh, sorry, you have this information vacuum, and so she is making decisions with absolutely no clue, and so, and he's making, and and he's making decisions based on the whole idea of marketing the superiority of China, both to him, his people and to the rest of the world. And so that really comes to a head in the COVID mess. Right. Okay, so so we all know how this went, right? China, you know, COVID starts in China. They start locking down. 
And uh, except the only thing they didn't do is lock down flights from Wuhan to the outside world suspiciously. Now, I don't want to get into conspiracy thinking, but, you know, they locked down their population really quickly and managed to limit the amount of damage in Wuhan, bought themselves some time to sort out what's going on. So they're, you know, and, and as this is starting to just, you know, ravage the U.S. particularly and Europe um, and much of the world, the Chinese are smugly patting themselves on the back and talking about the superiority of the Chinese system. And certainly people are looking at the ability of the government to crack heads and, you know, say, you know, you can't go anywhere. And it's a very attractive commercial for authoritarian regimes mm-hmm. because it looks like they've got the job done. So fast forward a year, vaccinations show up and they're effective. And in the West, so the Chinese have been rushing to get one um, and they developed one using older technology. And in the West, we're using mRNA and a bunch of other crazy stuff. And we've you know, put it through a pretty effective safety process. Um, and so what happens? The Chinese vaccine is relatively ineffective. So it, but, but they, again, they're trumpeting it as, ha, we got the first vaccine. This shows the superiority of Chinese science. And they start exporting it, and then they discover the people that receive these donations discover that, you know, this stuff is not effective at all. They got the crap that didn't pass Q- uh, quality control in China, but even though the quality, the good stuff, doesn't work very well. And we now discover when the, you know, milder but more transmissible variants come along, like all these Omicrons, that it's completely ineffective against Omicron. Mm. So here's the thing. She has bet his regress of grievances, right? The, you know, this, right? In other words, he's, he's appealing to the nationalist and the inferiority complex of China after the opium wars and saying, this is why we are superior. We have a vaccine and we have our ability to keep people behaving and we're not going to let anybody die of COVID. Zero COVID. That's the policy. So, so he's betting his legitimacy on zero COVID. So the problem is the Omicron comes along, the old vaccine doesn't work. They don't have a pipeline or the ability to develop a new one. And he staked the the country on, well, we can't import from the decadent West. You know, we, we can't go to Pfizer because China is superior. That's right. He's painted himself into a corner. That's right. And... And probably in a situation where the very people who are telling him we've got the vaccine, it's all beautiful, are not going to tell him, oh, by the way, it doesn't work. Yes. And and even if he knows it doesn't work, which he probably does by now, yep. he's got to keep doubling down on what doesn't work. This is the cult mentality, right? The doctrine is sacred. When it doesn't work, the only option you have, you can't get different doctrine because the doctrine is sacred. Yeah. And if the doctrine isn't sacred, then the supreme leader doesn't deserve to be the supreme leader. Right? You can't go there. So the only thing you can do is do more that doesn't work. So this leads some of the people in the government to make some very interesting decisions. You know, not only all of these lockdowns on progressively larger scales anytime that somebody shows up testing positive, right? That instead of locking down the apartment building, now they're locking down the whole suburb. That's right. You know, all of a sudden a million people are locked down because one guy got sick. That's right. And, and we have to remember to look to these populations. These are cities with millions of people in them. Mm-hmm. And when you shut down a few city blocks, 
you are shutting down massive amounts of production and it really does matter to your economy. Yeah, and you've and now you now you've got GDP decline coming in, but you also have the stage set for more GDP decline in the future as people are saying these morons can't get their act together with you know, why am I producing, you know, why am I making t-shirts in China? You know, I can make t-shirts in Bangladesh, I can make t-shirts in Vietnam, I can make t-shirts in Malaysia or or or. That's right. And so now I'm moving production as soon as my facility, you know, the equipment that I've sent over there is amortized, you know, in five years or three years or whatever. I'm moving production somewhere else to where they're not run like a cult. And all of a sudden they're losing customers. It isn't, it isn't that big right now, but it's going to get bigger. So, and especially if people, you know, if war with Taiwan does come, we know that anything coming from China will be embargoed in a lot of, you know, most of their export business is going to dry up. You won't be able to get product from China. That's right. So you're going to align with friendly countries. So, so the, the COVID policy, so basically, so now what you get is that the only action that officials are taking is doing more of what doesn't work. That's the only thing they can do without pissing off shit. So you now have people that are, and if you thought this was bad in Scientology ideal orgs where they're you know, defogging with that toxic crap all the time, they're disinfecting runways at airports because they're still believing in the surface uh, theory of transmission. Oh my God, I didn't even know that much. Yeah, I mean, that's an extreme example, but they're, they're doing, the other thing they've been doing is they've been putting people in these quarantine, quote, hospitals, really more like prisons. So in the initial days of COVID, like, the press worldwide was like, wow, China really knows how to get things done. They built an entire hospital in two weeks. Well, it's really more like a prison. It's an isolation facility. It doesn't actually provide much in the way of medical care. And so they're building you know, millions of beds of isolation facilities. And two weeks ago, they flipped the switch and they just stopped zero COVID in the wake of these demonstrations. Right? Dictators can't actually think, play the long game. So all of a sudden, people start demonstrating in Shanghai, Beijing, and all sorts of other big cities, not out in the sticks, on a scale that the People's Armed Police might not be able to cope with. Yep. And she won 80s. And he's like, basically, you're on your own. He's now saying the hospitals take care of you. Don't worry. If you sick, go to the hospital. The problem is that with all this zero COVID, all of the hospital's revenue has dried up from elective surgery and tests and all the other things they used to make money from. So they don't have the money to treat the surge in COVID patients that are going to hit. And they still don't have vaccines that work. Yeah, but it's like now now the promise is, well, if you do get sick, we take care of you. So they don't have vaccines that work. And, and oh, by the way, who is the least vaccinated segment of the population? It's the oldsters. In the U.S., the oldsters are probably, if I recall correctly, they're the most heavily vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're the most compliant with vax requirements. That's right. The young- but in China, it's like 30%. 30% of the oldsters are some ridiculously low number. So all of a sudden, we're going to have, you know, lots of oldsters dying. Right. And that's you know, 
accelerate the whole population problem that's already a, a done deal there. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they're, yeah. And, and although it'll certainly save them on pension costs that they already can't afford, but, you know, culturally in a society that tends to respect elders perhaps more than the youth oriented American culture, yeah. that's a really bad deal. That's right. You know, and they're on their own. And, you know, it's like, you know, my mother is 90 something and she lives in an assisted living facility and they have not lost anybody to COVID, but they are fierce. Everybody is still masking up. To, you walk outside your door and you are masked up with an N95 mask. Yeah. Staff, visitors, everybody, they're ruthless. Yep. And good for them. They haven't lost anybody, but that's, and everybody's vaccinated. And so, you know, things are like that where my stepdad is and he got COVID last week. It's going to sneak in there even when you're doing all the protocols. It's just going to be percentage. You're playing the percentages. Yeah. Well, every time I go to visit her, I'm, you know, which involves an airplane ride, you know, I'm worried that, you know, I'm masked up on airplanes, even though that's unfashionable these days. But, you know, but the, but the China is like, he's now rolled over and it's like, you're on your own. And he's depending on a healthcare system that nobody is bothered to tell him is broke. Hmm. Mm. So, so it's just it's, gonna keep this. See, it's 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 the spiraling problem. Is that we keep coming back to this dictator problem, but it's a it's a it's a really good way of framing the entire series of problems that are created structurally by ruling people this way. Yeah, and that's really the point we wanted to make with this. Is the CCP is just another name or set of letters to describe a system that cannot sustain itself. Yes. Without and and even with coercive control of both itself and the broader population, it can't do that. Right. So the concern is is if COVID really starts to shut them down, GDP continues to decline, is whether he will risk the economic wreckage that would happen if he invades Taiwan. If he decides to play on nationalist fears, no matter what the cost, because it's the only card he's got left to play to stay in power, you know, that's going to be a massive issue. Yeah. And, you know, the best thinking that I am aware of says that although the military losses would be significant to the U.S. side, right? we got no skin in the game in Ukraine. We're shipping off toys, but we don't have any boots on the ground. There's nobody coming back to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware in body bags. Right. You know, we got no skin in the game other than cash and, you know, geopolitical issues. And, you know, with China, if Taiwan is attacked, there will be American casualties. Well, there will be a lot of casualties. Yeah. But we will, I think, ultimately win. We will certainly be able to use effective economic warfare, no holds barred, at a level that the Russian, you know, Russian was kind of like the, the small-scale test. Yeah, we have uh, 4,700 4, Americans in Taiwan. Yeah, and that's, but that's not the issue. The issue is, I mean, 
there's it's, it's pretty guaranteed that if there's a tax there, we're going to have casualties on America. Well, it's, the, it's the mobile situation, right? There's a lot of, there's multiple carrier battle groups yeah. close by. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, nobody's ever sunk an American carrier since World War II. No, if they go about sinking American ships, things are going to go to hell real fucking fast over there. But, but ultimately, I think it will. We don't want that. Uh, we don't want that. No, we don't want that. We, we don't, don't want that. that. Even though I think we will ultimately, you know, we will ultimately prevail. I still think that it's, uh, you know, it's a it's a horrible outcome, and uh, you know, but but it would result in it would result in ultimately the destruction of China as we know it. Um, so it's there's a huge consequence to Xi's cult of personality and to his authoritarian regime that that really can incinerate the global system in a way that Russia is, is really just a, you know, kind of a, a, a very small scale. You know, Russia's significant, but it's a tenth of what's happening. And this is all because of the authoritarian cult that she is putting together because he knows that he isn't good enough to have retained power under the old system, which was at least somewhat merit-based. It's funny because you can, we can afford in the position that we're in, the military that we have, the economy that we have, the, the, the influence that we have, we in America can sit and, and sit back in our recliners and laugh at or ridicule the situations in North Korea or Libya or Togo or, you know, these little tiny, um, you know, what we've been calling clown countries. The, the people there are not clowns. Let's not, let's not confuse no. here. We care about those people, those populations. They're human beings. The people who are running these shows are clowns. They're cult leaders. They're nonsensical, ridiculous. Mm -hmm figures. But I think the point we're making here with China is that this ain't that. This is something where that same kind of person running that same kind of shit show is going to have global repercussions. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. we don't, we kind of don't want that. So let me ask you this in terms of moving towards a conclusion to this show is what what should we be watching for or what can we as Westerners or as Americans outside of this shit show, what should we be pushing for or doing to prevent total disaster here? We can't prevent the depopulation, the GDP shrinkage, the, pop, the problems that China's going to have are their own creation. But mm -hmm. what can we do from the outside? I think it's... Um, I think we're already largely doing the right things. Okay. Continuing to support Ukraine mm -hmm. and not letting Russia win. Showing, in other words, showing that the U.S. and the European partners have consistent long-term resolve to help Ukraine prevail in that situation. Right. And prevailing being exactly what Zelensky said when he addressed Congress last night. So that's we're recording this on December 22nd. Um, you know, the minimum conditions for peace is all of our territory pre-2014 returned and reparations, which would be in the hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, 500 plus billion to get our country 
you know, our infrastructure and our physical life back to where it was. Rebuild our cities. Um, and, you know, probably also join NATO. Right. So this never happens again. So those are very reasonable conditions given the circumstances. Um, so if we continue to show resolve that that, you know, over the course of another year or two of potential conflict, that will show China that we are not going to fracture the alliances that we have with Asian partners. Um, so, you know, I think the other thing is continuing to um, set up structures where we are able to wage even more effective economic warfare um, and make sure that China knows it. So the CHIPS Act is the first salvo there. So that's already been, I think, uh, uh, you know, served notice that, you know, the most important or a, an extraordinarily important Chinese industry is now essentially throttled. Um, but I think also setting more conditions for economics, like, you know, we'll, um, we'll take you all of your country, uh, companies off of U.S. stock exchanges mm-hmm. you know, so that you won't have access to foreign capital. Um, you'll be removed from SWIFT. All of that, setting up the ducks in a row to make sure that he's aware of the consequences, even if his advisors don't tell him. Right. Um, and continuing to work uh, militarily with, uh, in particular, Japan, um, and also with uh, other countries in the area, Australia, uh, potentially Vietnam, uh, and others to raise the stakes for any China, uh, you know, naval operations in the in that area. Wow. And I think, you know, we're already doing that. We've got to continue to fill that in so that it's a tripwire that, you know, you step over the line, you know, you can talk all you want about China, Taiwan is part of China and all, you know, gene up all the rhetoric you want for the, for the rubes at home. That's but right. the moment you actually try to play that, you're going to get smacked in a way that you're not going to forget. That's right. And it's going to happen very fast. And that's that. That's and, right. you know, I think um, I think this is important for people to keep in the back of their minds to to, to bookmark this, bookmark this um, this information we've been going over in the show. I think this is very very important stuff. What we've been covering here because we've basically been looking at foreign relations or international relations through a cult lens or cultic control lenses, right? And and the long term effects of that on a nation's prosperity versus its poverty. And the fact that it's kind of inevitable that it's going to go into, into you know, a, a spike and then a decline with mm-hmm. this kind of system. And don't be fooled by the spikes. Look at, you know, you got you to gotta have some savvy about the world when you're looking at it. You can't. And, and our domestic policies and our foreign policies, they matter. What we do here in the States matters. And what you support as a citizen of this country matters. Mm-hmm. For example, one thing right now I'm seeing after Zelensky's visit just within a day or two is, you know, numbnuts in the GOP going, why are we sending any money to these people? Why are we supporting any of this? This doesn't make any sense. We should just pull our flippers back in. Could you not, could you be more ignorant of how the world works and, and our place in it to say stupid stuff like that? Yeah, we, we are writing checks for potentially by the end of this, uh, we are writing checks for a fraction of a percent of GDP 
yes. to essentially bury the threat from Russia that we have been dealing with for 75 years since the end of World War II. That's a, and we're doing it without getting any Americans killed. I mean, the return on investment is so amazing on this one that when you have voices in the GOP talking about this, you have to wonder whose side are you on? Well, exactly. And, you know, there is this whole kind of, you know, well, these, you know, there was a, there was a faction that is in love with the idea of a dictator and Putin until Ukraine started looked like he was a good example to follow, you know, that he was getting things done. And yeah. now it's still taking a while. They, they can't really admit that they were wrong. But, but the other thing is, well, you know, we're giving away American money. But what is that American money that's going to Ukraine doing? It's going right back to American companies who are building missiles and guns and airplanes and tanks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That money is going right into the U.S. economy. Thank you very much. I mean, if we're going to complain about the military-industrial complex, and there is no shortage of complaints, <laughs> completely valid to make about that, could we not look at the positives of it, too? <laughs> and the yeah. Well, this whole complex exists to serve us also. I mean, again, don't, you know, please don't put words in my mouth. Y'all know I'm not for war. I'm not for violence. I'm not for violent rhetoric. That's not really my point. I'm just trying to point out here that there are people who can have a seeming pacifist, domestic nationalist message and actually be so out to lunch that they might as well be working for the enemy. That's what I'm trying to yeah. say. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's it's very clear that the best way to do things is to have a military that you don't use. Yeah. And when you look at the percentage of our economy that we spend on that military, and you look at the cost to the economy, if Russia is able to impose its will on Europe, or China is able to impose its will on Taiwan, and then Korea, and then Vietnam, and then, and then, and then, you know, you're looking at a significant decline in GDP and the quality of American life. 3% of, 3 of our money going to that, to, to, to trying to maintain the international economic system in, in the way that it's been, Benefits us disproportionately. It benefits a lot of people, but it certainly benefits us, you know, as the architects of it. And if we don't, you know, if we don't have the ability to impose our will on people trying to subvert that, it's going to cost us a lot more than three percent, both in terms of direct economics and in terms of quality of life. Exactly. There we and go. By the way, I am a hippie peacenik from way back. Yeah. We are not warmongers here. That is not at all our point. I don't want war. I don't want violence. I don't want conflict. But the fact of the matter is that there are countries and societies and setups and nations, cultures in this world that absolutely positively despise us. And we have to kind of live in that world. And we yeah, have and it's and it's and it's not even despise. It's you know that there's they're trying to do, you know, you know, assuming noble intent, which is a big assumption given all we've talked about, yeah. they're trying to do right by their people and they're trying to compete with us. Right. Um, 
you know, and if you are willing to behave, we have no problem with that because we can outcompete you. But if you're trying to, you know, make it a zero sum game and bring us down uh, to advance your own agenda, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna be happy about that. But I think that, um, you know, the, the conflict is that if we end up, you know, if the rest of the world goes authoritarian, it's gonna be another four hundred years like the Middle Ages of lost progress. That's right. And we'll have to rediscover, you know, if, if the service of the state demands lies, that's antithetical to science, which has driven our standard of living. So if science goes away, it'll be centuries before science is rediscovered. Exactly. We'll go back to, you know, we'll, we'll be going back to the Middle Ages, maybe not in terms of, you know, losing cars and stuff, but there will be a horrible period of stasis in human history. That's right. You know, the, the stakes are real. Exactly. Exactly. So no big deal. <laughs> you know, happy holidays, everybody. So we have to stand up, you know, so we have to stand up for truth. That's and right. we have to stand up for, you know, the, the individualism as the key Western value, that we, as people, our lives matter. That's right. And uh, that we want organizations that work for us and that work for, as you know, as many people as can, as we can do. That's right. That's exactly right. There is not a system we have developed yet in all of history that benefits every single person all the time, 24-7. It just doesn't work that way. However, there are systems we have built that benefit more people more often and provide longer-term opportunity, growth, and progress than other systems. And when we when we when we break it down to you know the dictator problem versus the problems of democracy and, and a free society, they are very different sets of problems. But I would rather have all the problems, the noise, the chaos, and the confusion of free will and free action and free belief than the cool, clean efficiency and seeming organization of the dictator, which is always only a short-term situation. Mm -hmm. That's that's the choice. That's how it is. That's how it looks because that's how history shows us this is how it plays out over and over and over and over again. So, John, thank you very much for helping, for really providing the, the the raw knowledge and analysis here to break this down for us this week. I would definitely not have ever been able to do this show like this without you. So I really appreciate your time and contribution here. Well, I'm absolutely, I enjoy doing all the research for this. And, you know, fortunately, this aligns with some of the stuff I've been doing, you know, professionally. So, you know, I've been able to go a little deeper than, um, than I might. And I realize that going deeper also means going pretty long. So those of you who have stayed through the bitter end, thank you for the gift of your time. And um, uh, I hope it's been educational and, uh, you know, we'll see you in the comments. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks to everybody out there for taking the time. And, uh, and please, of course, if you did get something out of this, if this was clarifying to you in terms of what you're seeing in the media versus, you know, questions you might have had or or what the hell is going on over there or what is this all about? I hope now it's a clearer picture. It certainly is for me. And this certainly informs an awful lot of how I think about what I see and what I hear about what's happening in the world and what and what our role is in connection with it. 
And that's all I really want for you guys. So if we've accomplished even a little bit of that, then good. And uh, please do share, get this information out and around out there because I think that this ties in completely with everything I've ever had to say about cults, coercive control, authoritarian frameworks. It's all the same stuff. It's just the scale. Let's talk, you know, when we talk national and multinational, we have shows like this. It's the same stuff. So all that being said, thanks for coming around. I hope you guys do have a happy holiday season and that we have a bright and better future as a result of knowing and acting on this information. Again, John, thank you very much. Hey, Chris, thanks again for having me. And um, everybody, same thing. Have a great holiday. Stay out of trouble or get into some, whichever works better for you. That's right. All right, folks, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.